Ice and fire books one through three are brutal, powerful, and engaging if you can look beyond the cruelty and enjoy the quote-unquote game. Book four is brutal, ponderous, and not very interesting. Book five is brutal, boring, circuitous, and disappointing, and contains nothing but cruelty. Martin has lost the game, dropped the reins, left the building. I loved the first three books so much that I was comparing Martin to Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. I slogged through the fourth book resolutely. As for the last book, I have never felt so betrayed and let down by an author. You will probably come to books four and five of A Song of Ice and Fire. Oh, wait, they fucked it up. You will probably come to books four and five of A Song of Fire and Ice expecting the books as good as books one and three. Won't you be disappointed? Song of Fire and Ice. That's pretty good, yeah. So, hello, and welcome to a very special Not A Cast uh, podcast. The podcast that usually goes through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week, but not here. Oh no, not here. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our inaugural Patreon episode entitled, Why a Dance with Dragons is a Better Book Than a Storm of Swords. Now, if you guys and gals subscribe to our Patreon, you'll be getting at least one of these types of episodes a month if you subscribe for only $5 a month. But there are more rewards than that. Yeah, so to quickly recap what our Patreon is and the reward tiers for it, if you pay $1 to $4 a month, you're going to be in the Sparrows tier, which gives you a thank you from us at the end credits. If you pay $5 to $9 a month, you get a, you're in the Poor Fellows tier, which gets you a thanks and the show notes as well as these special episodes. If you pay 10 to $14 a month, you're in the Hedge Knights category, in which you get thanks from us, the notes for the show, special episodes, and one-day early release access to our episodes. If you pay 15 to $19 a month, you'll be in the Sworn Sword section, in which case you get thanks, show notes, special episodes, the one-day early release, and the option to submit a question for us to answer in our rotating question of the week. If you pay 20 to $29 a month, you're in the Kingsguard, in which case you get thanks, show notes, special episodes, two-day early release, and the option to submit the question for the question of the week. $30 and above a month is the Lord's Commander, in which case you get thanks, special episodes, show notes, the option to submit a question, and a three-day early release. Yeah, so it's it's an option out there for you folks if you're interested in, in, in contributing to our Patreon. It's, it's not a necessity. We'll still be releasing our weekly chapter by chapter episodes. Um, the, the episode you've, you've already heard this week is our brand two episode. I hope you guys have enjoyed that. And our intent in doing these special Patreon episodes is to kind of broaden out from our usual chapter by chapter uh, episodes and talk about some of the topics that kind of interest us a little bit more broadly. So we'll talk about things like theories, we'll do character discussion, or talk about the meta that if you follow both Emmett and I on social media or read our writings on poorquentin.tumblr.com or wars and politics advice and fire.wordpress.com. That is kind of where we make our bread and butter, but kind of as a special treat and, you know, a bit of an advertisement as well for our Patreon. We thought that today we'd release this episode about why we think that A Dance with Dragons is a better book than A Storm of Swords for free. And we're releasing it to the general public on our traditional podcast feed, which is uh, you can find us at 
uh, notacastasoaf.podbean.com or at any other places you would normally find us. Yeah, we thought before asking you to give us money for it, we'd give you a taste of what you'd be spending that money on. Like Jeff said, we have a lot of interests in the series beyond simply going through a chapter by chapter on, on theories, on specific characters. Uh, and you can always it's always entertaining to find something we might disagree on since we've been agreeing <laughs> on so, so many things in the podcast so far. So maybe we'll come up with something we can actually fight about. Exactly. Uh, so if you like what you hear on this episode, consider kicking a few bucks a month to the Patreon. You get to hear more of them. Yeah. And it's it's a great opportunity for, for us to kind of get beyond the chapter by chapter, even though we love doing it. We also love talking about other things uh, more generally in the fandom and theories and character discussions and all that type of stuff. But before we get too far into this episode, we thought that it would make that or rather that this episode would make for a better discussion if you didn't just hear our two voices. And while I'm sure that you love Emmett's voice, um, you might not love mine and that's fine. I don't care. Uh, but we decided to invite someone who has a stellar voice. A very special friend by, that goes by the name of Michael. So, Michael, why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, ladies. Um, hello. <laughs> I'm uh, Michael, probably better known, maybe equally well known as Bookshelf Stud. Um, I am, of course, a moderator with Jeff on the subreddit Vice and Fire. Um, I'm also one of the co-hosts of the podcast Maester Monthly, um, which is hosted by the moderators of the subreddit of ice and fire um i'm also on twitter and and have been writing in the fandom for uh gosh it's been like six years now actually um and have just been generally a part of the fandom for a while um i'm really excited to uh spread the gospel of uh dance with dragons a little bit with you guys (laughs) um to chew the fat um so yeah thanks for having me on yeah, man, it's a, it's a real Our pleasure. Yeah, it's a real pleasure having you on, and uh, we're excited to have you on. Uh, and uh, you know, you've been doing podcasting now for with Maester Monthly for you guys have been live now for over a year now, right? You guys started at the beginning of 2017. Yeah, our first right? episode was the a, a best of 2016 uh, on the subreddit episode, sort of highlights of that year, and we posted that early 2017, and we. I believe the best of 2017 episodes should be posting soon. Um, any day now. Yes. Any day now. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's been it's been exactly a year, um, and what a great year it's been. I, I it has been, and it's uh, it's a pleasure listening to you guys. And if you've never listened to the Maester Monthly podcast, they are available in all your usual formats, and it's a uh, excellent way to become familiarized with the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit, as well as also kind of get some of those. Uh, deep dive analyses and theorizing that the uh, the maesters of the subreddit are are, are known for and, and do a really good job at. And, uh, and not that you would necessarily want to listen to me any more than you are right now, but I've been a guest on a couple of the episodes and I'm sure Emmett will be on eventually with uh, for, with you guys on Maester Monthly. Oh, that's right. We've got, we've got you know, a, a huge backlog of guests, um, uh, Richard Madden and Stephen Delane and all the major actors <laughs> on Game of Thrones, of course. Uh, so, so we'll get, you know, we'll get down to to our other friends eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, don't listen to, yeah. the, to Jeff's episodes. Um, you know, you've no, probably heard don't. enough of him. So please don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, yeah, that's, that's awesome. I mean, uh, so everyone just check out Maester Monthly. Uh, it's an excellent podcast and, uh, and, and subscribe to them, rate them on iTunes and do all the good stuff you normally smash do. that like button, smash that MF and like button, as you guys always say. <laughs> um, 
as as always, our spoiler warning. So for as we transition into our, our regular or rather our irregular podcast, our spoiler warning is all published books. That is the five novellas, the three Duncan Egg novella, rather the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, the histories, George R. R. Martin interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show, anything and everything. So this episode is about why we think that A Dance with Dragons is a better book than A Storm of Swords. But to kind of set the mood a little bit, um, make it a little bit light, I thought I might ask a, a, a question, you know, if one of those rotating questions that you guys would have the ability to ask us if you contribute to our Patreon. Um, how would you guys rank the five main books of the series? Just just a simple ranking, not not like why you think that these books, you know, essay length uh, descriptions of why you, you're ranking them the way you are, but one to five, how would you rank the five novels? Since Michael's our guest, why don't you, why don't you start us off? Oh, no, that's, that's, that's the way to host. Um, okay, <laughs> the, the five novels, I would, and this might ruffle some feathers, sort them thusly. At the top of the list, uh, no, I'll go from the bottom. At the bottom of the list is A Clash of Kings, then A Game of Thrones, then right in the middle is A Storm of Swords, Second from the top is Dance with Dragons, and number one for me is <gasps> Feast. No way. Yeah. yeah. Heresy. I know. I, I've, I'm on this uh, dance exalting podcast right now, but, uh, you know, Feast holds a special place in my heart. Um, it does. Is it just the broken man speech? It's it's just the broken man speech. You know, I, I think it's, I think it's, uh, I think it's, Jay. if I could have a book that had Jamie's Riverlands chapters and Brienne's and also Quentin's chapters, then that would probably be my my ideal book. Um, but since I have one book with two thirds of those chapters, then that sort of pushes it over the edge for me. Interesting. What about <laughs> you, Emma? What do you, what, what, how would you rank them? Uh, my ranking's pretty boring. It's just in uh, reverse order of how they've come out. So my favorite is Dance. Second favorite is Feast. Third favorite is Storm. Fourth favorite is Clash. And least of all is Game. <laughs> I think he's gotten better as he's gone along. I think that's in large part because he's able to kind of use the layers he's built in with the previous books to enhance and enrich the later books. You know, so mm -hmm. much about of Dance and Feast is looking back at Storm and kind of unraveling the consequences of it and seeing the fallout from the characters. And I think that ultimately allows for a, a more compelling experience. If you look at how much of Dance and Feast are about the aftermath of the Red Wedding, the aftermath of Tywin's death, uh, you know, if you look at Jon's character in Dance and how much it's rooted in his experience in Clash and Storm, how much what Danny does in Dance is fleshing out the decisions she made in Storm. Um, certainly it's gotten more ambitious as it's gone, as it's gone along, and sometimes it's overambitious. But I think he's... Uh, I think everything that references to what's gone before uh, really adds a lot of layers to it. Like, if you look at, just take the Karstarks as a minor example, you know, they're presented in, you have this drama about Rickard Karstark in Storm and his downfall, and then in Dance, you see how his family back home is kind of dealing with it and the various sides they're taking and who they're appealing to. So to me, that really flushes out that family and makes them uh, even more interesting than they were in Storm. So I think every every it's it's just it's a slowly we're slowly climbing a mountain, and I, I fully expect from what we've seen of the Winds of Winter, if and when he manages to wrangle it together, it's going to be the best of the bunch again. <laughs> okay, well I think that about covers our podcast. Thanks everyone for no, I'm I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, you know you know actually a quick bit of tri trivia. I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, the Karstark family tree. Uh, it, it just had Rickard and uh, his son, whose name is escaping me now. 
the dude who was captured. Arian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he added all the different Karstarks in for the Feast for Crows, um, mm-hmm. uh, the appendix, the appendice for, for Feast for Crows and Dance now has all the different Karstarks in there. They got Alice and you have the, uh, gosh, I'm, I'm really blanking out on names now. <laughs> it's been so long. Arnolf and Arnolf, Gregon. Yeah, 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 all, yeah, all yeah. those guys. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so that oh, was really was. Uh, yes, I mean it's it's if you guys really like if if you're into like the minutia of, of a song of ice and fire and, and getting into the very minor trivia details, the appendices are a vastly unexplored place to kind of talk about um, different things that might be hinting at future directions of the story. But that, that's 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 not oh, the uh, discussion necessarily for for today. Um, well, it's it's relevant though because he's a, he's got the gardener style, right? His story develops as it grows. He plants seeds without necessarily knowing where they're going to lead. And part of why I love feast and dance is because they flowered in such unexpected ways as part of this really agonizing writing process <laughs> he went through. Yes, and yeah. I think they I think they ended up uh, better books because of it. You know, I think people I think people have very good reasons to prefer the first three over feast and dance. I get why a lot of people do, but I think the the vision of Feast and Dance they have in their head, like if he'd stuck to the five-year gap, I think would have been considerably worse books. Agreed. So I, I, I like the weird random directions it's taken quite a bit. So what about you, Jufflesworth? How would you rank them? Okay, so number five, A Game of Thrones. Number four, controversially, A Feast for Crows. Number three, A Clash of Kings. Number two, A Storm of Swords. And number one, A Dance with Dragons. But also like Emmett, I think that I will get to the winds of winter and I will rank that number one when I read that come early 2027 uh, I will <laughs> fully, <laughs> I'm looking forward to that day it's gonna it's yeah. gonna be wonderful uh, I'll be in, when you're old and blind and your grandkids are reading it to you <laughs> exactly great but no but I, I totally agree that um, uh, from what we've seen from the winds of winter sample chapters that we've gotten so far and there's 11 of them if you guys are interested in reading more about them I think Whew. we're going to yeah um <laughs> Amazingly, though, that's actually not the most number of chapters he released. I think he, he's Martin had said one point that he had released all about a third of a, of a Feast for Crows as a sample chapter where I read them at conventions. And he's like, I'm not going to do that ever again. Ouch, so yeah. Um, but but yeah, mm-hmm. uh, but 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 when you what, my ranking, though, is, is based on I, I think the the story and a lot of times what I what I read in this is what I when I'm rereading the books nowadays and Em and I are going through this reread now through the chapter by chapter podcast um, I find myself really enjoying rereading A Dance with Dragons more than than A Game of Thrones uh, my initial read of, of A Dance with Dragons was not particularly I mean it was it was positive but wasn't mm-hmm. as positive as it is right now and that's something we'll be talking about later on but yeah I, I, I tend to look at why I rank books based on how much I enjoy rereading them now that you know, I've reread them probably about five times. I guess we're going through a six reread right now in the chapter by chapter podcast. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really groove towards dance more than any other book in the series. I think a lot of it is also that it was just so much time in between books for Feast and Dance. And if those books had come out in exactly the form they are in 2002 and 2004, I think there would be a lot more positive reception for them because they are definitely books largely concerned with the aftermath of everything that happened in Storm when Martin kind of tore up his own chessboard in a lot of ways. And I think Mm -hmm. the way those books explore the aftermath is really beautiful. But I get being frustrated by waiting five years and then six years for the aftermath of a book. That is, that's, that's a legitimate frustration. So the writing process and the waiting process, I think, definitely colored people's reaction to both of those books. Agreed. So uh, question, 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 question. (laughs) 
Do you hate a storm of swords? God, no. Of course I do. Oh, okay, good. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, I don't hate a storm of swords. <laughs> They're all great. These are all great books. We wouldn't be bothering with them if any of them were less Absolutely. than great. Absolutely. Uh, they they're all great and they're all flawed. We just we think Dance's strengths are stronger and its uh, weaknesses are less weak, and we are correct. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. yeah. It's objective. What about you, Jeff? Do you hate Storm of Swords? You hate everything. That's your whole, that's your whole shtick. That's your brand. That's my, it's my, uh, yeah, that is my brand. Hashtag brand. But it's, uh, <laughs> but no, I, I don't hate a Storm of Swords. I, I, when I, when I first read the books, I was blown away by Storm. And, and I had the advantage, I guess I would say I had the advantage in that I read the books, um, I first read the books in 2012. So after the end of season two, I was like, man, I, I got to figure out what happened to Samuel Tarley. I think I've told the story a number of times. Mm. So I was like, oh man, you know, Sam is like being left at the fist of the first men. Is he going to survive? He better survive. I love that guy. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I'll, I'll read the books. You know, I can, I can read all five and, and kind of get a little bit ahead of the TV show. Um, so I had the advantage of reading Storm of Swords. I, I, <laughs> I remember this uh, very, very uh, vividly. I was going on on a date with uh, with someone, not my wife. Um, it was someone before I was I was dating previously, uh, oh, oh. And, and I was listening to the audiobooks because I don't actually read because I'm an American. And <laughs> I was uh, <laughs> I was going on this date and I was in Baltimore City driving around and it was the Red Wedding and like the drums were were pounding and things like that. And I was I had the worst date of my entire life after that. But I mean because I was <laughs> I was so torn up about. <laughs> Rob Stark and Catelyn. So you're just you're sort of sitting there like on on this date, but you're sort of staring into the middle distance, thinking about Cat raking her fingernails down her face, and and just I, I'm assuming that that's what was happening right at your table. I I think I think I distinctly remember telling this this person. I said, "Those motherfuckers killed Rob Stark. Holy shit!" <laughs> like. Every time a waiter shows up, you're expecting them to have a crossbow. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I ordered a bunch of drinks that day too, if I remember correctly. So, I mean, I mean, even <laughs> even even when I reread like the Red Wedding, I, mm. I'm just I, it still floors me like the way that it's it's written. It really kind of just crushes me, and it's supposed to crush you as as a reader. And that's that's oh, a yeah. testament to Martin's strengths as as a writer. Um, something that we're we're exploring again in the chapter by chapter podcast is looking at at Martin as as a writer and some of the more meta topics of how he writes writes the books. But yeah, like that emotional gut punch from the red wedding uh, and then later on I, I and i think we'll talk about this a little a little bit later i, I remember when stannis shows up at the wall hmm. uh as you, you guys are probably going to be a little bit shocked by this is that i was um i was not necessarily a stannis fan when i first read the books and i i had seen the first two seasons of the show i had understood the character but i didn't totally understand why he was in the narrative and why he was featured so strongly in the narrative until he shows up at the wall and i was like oh my gosh like this is great. Like I had the most jubilant triumphant moment when Stannis came up and saved John and saved the Night's Watch and all those, those types of things. But yeah, I, 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 I love A Storm of Swords. Um, I, I've been looking forward to getting to that in a few years when we get to it in the, um, the non-cast, the actual podcast. But, but yeah, I, what about you, Michael? Do you, do you hate A Storm of Swords? I, uh, no, I, I don't hate A Storm of Swords. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, what, the thing I love about it is, is, um, what a great wrap-up it is to everything from book one and two. And, and I mean, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, about how there's some things that can't be wrapped up neatly at the end and how books four and five get into that. But it's the, the very neat and smart resolutions to a lot of the arcs, including things that you didn't necessarily expect to get resolved, like the, uh, the cat's paw mystery, the, the guy who's coming to murder yes. Bran. I never 
the way it's resolved, uh, Tyrion sort of deducing it and Jamie deducing it and, and this happening at the moment that Joffrey is about to die. Um, it, for me that, that, I mean, it blew my mind at the time, but also the more I thought about it really worked very well for Joffrey's storyline and actually sort of gave him an arc through the book that only worked retroactive. Like not, not that George R. Martin didn't intend for it necessarily, although maybe he didn't, but that it, knowing what you know you look back and you go oh wow joffrey is really interesting looking back um and so so that that plot line in particular that arc of um the the cat's paw starting from early game of thrones running to the end of a storm of swords when joffrey dies um that that to me exemplified what i liked about a storm of swords that really smart wrap up to those plot lines that wasn't conventional and it wasn't uh it still took you by surprise yeah I, I I agree with that. That is it is a strong wrap up. Um, the purple wedding um, is is a uh, was a great um, palate cleanser almost at the time um, <laughs> yeah. to to the red wedding. Uh, even though it, it's horrifying in its own way, um, but it's 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 definitely something that I was. Uh, I'll admit, I admittedly, I, I cheered a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I remember listening to the audiobook for it, but. Um, Maybe maybe it'd be good if we go through talking a little bit about the strengths and weaknesses specifically of A Storm of Swords and then kind of transitioning to talking about why our strengths and weaknesses for A Dance of Dragons and why we think it's a better book after that. Do you think that might work out uh, if we talk a little bit, go through kind of just some of the more general strengths that we see in, in both strengths and weaknesses we see in both Storm and Dance? Sounds Absolutely. structure, sweetie. Yeah. Sweet. All right. Emmett? kick us off so uh, yeah i agree with everything you two were just saying about storm what i love about storm is the the momentum the the pace of it mm. the climaxes of it uh, the way it wraps up pretty much everything from the red wedding forward is perfect <laughs> i mean every chapter is just staggeringly good yes. like the last third or so of the novel that's really when things ramp up at the wall you get the kind of the escalating battle with the wildlings first egret's crew shows up south of the wall then Mance's entire army uh, and then Stannis shows up and makes his offer, and John struggles with it. And yeah, that that optimism of how things end at the Wall is really, really great. Uh, with both Stannis showing up and then John being named elected Lord Commander, especially since a lot of the other storylines end perfectly in a more devastating fashion. Um, that that note of optimism is is really, really powerful. But yeah, elsewhere you got King's Landing really ramps up post Red Wedding. You get the Purple Wedding. You get Tyrion's trial. You get the duel between Oberyn and Gregor, and then you get Tyrion's devastating final chapter where he learns the truth about Tysha and kills Tywin and Shay. Uh, you uh, have the kind of sad denouement in the Riverlands where Arya's uh, devastated and is walking around with Sandor and eventually leaves him uh, to, to his death. You get the great wrap-up like uh, on Dragonstone right before they get to the Wall where Davos' hand and kind of dueling with Melisandre for Stannis' soul. <laughs> All that stuff is really great. The, the overall, the the Davos Stannis material is my favorite stuff in in the book. I think mm. Davos's arc in Storm is just flawless. It's my favorite thing in the first three books. It's just he starts out, you know, on a rock with nothing, almost dead. He's lost everything. He's ready to die himself. He's wondering if he should not even try to keep living. And then by the end, he's hand to the king and saving the world. It's just it's just perfectly constructed. Every chapter hits home. You really get why he's doing what he's doing. He convinces Stannis and sways him, pulls him back from the brink. Uh, it's just really moving, really, really trenchant philosophically, the debates they have on Dragonstone. Like, you know, what's the life of one bastard boy against a kingdom? Everything, Davos says softly. 
uh, the stuff about Claw Isle, Stannis naming Davos's hand, and then his Stannis's conversation with John atop the wall about, you know, Davos reminded me I have to protect my people and I'm going to let the wildlings through on that basis. All that stuff is, is I think, it's just uh, absolutely brilliant. And the cat, like, so that my two favorite storylines of the book are the Davos Stannis stuff, this kind of perfect rise, and then the cat Catelyn Rob stuff, this perfect fall, Ooh. this this circling of the abyss that ends in the Red Wedding. Uh, all, all that stuff is absolutely amazing. Totally, yeah. I, one of one of my favorite chapters from that book is when Cat and Rob are at Old Stones, um, yes. talking about the will and and just. I mean, there, there's a lot of good world building even in that chapter, but it's all it's also woven in very well with with what's happening emotionally for Cat and Rob, and and what's happening with the plot and what's happening with sort of the ideas of the book. Um, yeah, that that one stands out for me. I mean, Cat is one of my favorite point of views in general, but um, yes, that that chapter in particular, it's like that one and and Whispering Wood are probably my favorite Cat chapters. Um, off the top of my head, I, I don't know them encyclopedically. <laughs> it's, uh, and that that Cat chapter, she's going back over the same ground as the Whispering Wood and thinking about you yes. know the battle that was fought. Now we're passing by the, it. That chapter, the tone of it very much feels like feast and dance to me, where it's very like mournful and it's about death and decay and how everything's falling apart. You get a little taste of those next next couple books in that oh, chapter. Yeah. yeah, that's that's a really great one. Yeah, I I, I do love the 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 Catelyn stuff. Um, it, her chapters are are terrific in in Storm. Uh, I mean, I I think she's probably. <laughs> tied for first place for my favorite um, arc in A Clash of Kings, too. Um, mm. I, I love all of her chapters in, in Clash, where she's the point of view for the Renly Stannis stuff. And then you have a deep melancholy setting in when she finds out that Brandon Rickon have been killed, which, we, as we know, is not true. Um, but yeah, her stuff in Storm just kind of flows right from uh, from A Clash of Kings. Um, and, you know, the, the other aspect of that, too, is that Martin is kind of cascading. It's, it's a cascade effect of all of these horrible things that are happening to Catelyn Stark. She loses her husband in A Game of Thrones. She loses her two sons in A Clash of Kings, she thinks, Bran and Rickon. Um, she loses Sansa, really, in, in A Game of Thrones, too, mm-hmm. to, to the Lannisters. And then she loses them, loses her permanently to, to them in, in The Storm of Swords when she finds out that she, she's been wed to Tyrion Lannister. Mm-hmm. And then she loses Rob. Like, that's the last thing she sees is... Is, is Rob being stabbed in the heart by Bruce Bolton and then she that's her her final final thing and it's a very tragic um, terrible way of, of doing it but it's 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 almost Shakespearean in, in its in, in its tragedy and it's it's very emotionally gut punching for me um, for for me like one of my favorite things about a storm of swords is the introduction of Jamie Lannister actually the introduction of two point of view characters Jamie Lannister and Samuel Tarly who are both are two only two new point of view characters in a storm of swords uh, every one of Jamie's chapters, I, I love. Jamie is my favorite, favorite point of view character. I know that Emmett makes fun of me because he says that he's a 90s. What do you say? That, um, <laughs> I like him because he's a 90s anti-hero. He's, he's a 90s anti-hero. Like I can picture him in like image comics, like sharpening his sword, and, like being lit from below. <laughs> yeah. he's got, he's, there's a certain like, yeah, I mean, which, which of course is fine. Like I love a lot of characters like that. Sandor is like that to a large extent. And he's one of my favorites. Yeah, J- Jamie for me is... Uh, is uh, someone I more appreciate as a POV character and <laughs> the incredible work Martin was putting into his writing. I don't really emotionally connect to the dude all that much the you. way a lot of people do, which is totally fine. Like, it's the reverse of that for Stannis, where I really emotionally connect with the dude, but I know a lot of people don't and have very good reasons to. So that's that's totally fine. But I agree. Uh, Martin 
really took a lot of risks making Jamie a POV character, given what a one-note villain he was at first. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that really could have fallen apart on him if he'd done it wrong. Uh, and he, he put a lot of his best writing and most passionate writing in really digging into this, a lot of the central themes of the story with Jamie. So, yeah, by the time you get to whatever he chose, Ellipsis, at the end of Jamie's storm arc, that is that is a really powerful moment. Yeah, and and the thing too is like Jamie has so many iconic moments in in a storm of swords. He has jumping into the bear pit. He loses his hand, obviously, and then of course you have the Heron or the Heron Hall bathtub scene, which is wonderfully acted by uh, Nikolai Kostrowaldu and um, Gwendolyn Gwendolyn Christie. Gwendolyn Christie um, for in season three of Game of Thrones, where you find out more about Jamie's backstory and, and why he is the way that he is and that he's he's not necessarily a one note villain, that he has some complexity built into his background and that his the thing that he is most known for as being a villain and being the Kingslayer was for very good reasons. And that is he had to kill the king in order to, to save 500,000 people from from certain death. Uh, the other character that I really love in Storm is Samuel Tarly. Uh, who is a uh, interesting character because he's not nor- Jamie is someone that I normally would gravitate towards, and I do emotionally mm-hmm. connect to him uh, as kind of a soldier, as a someone who has been you know the old the oldest child, or he is the oldest child, right? Or Cersei the oldest? I can't remember. Do you remember? Cersei is technically, That's but right. Jamie emotionally, I think, has always basically been the oldest child in that family. So yeah, <laughs> and and having like a strong parental father figure uh, of ambiguous. Uh, or rather bad. He's, he has a terrible father, but that's beside the point. Samuel though is, is, is bookish. He's overweight. He's, um, I wouldn't normally think that I would gravitate towards him, but his first chapter, oh my gosh, like Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. cannot say enough good things about the chapter and how that whole refrain, that kind of, um, uh, it's a, it's a chorus line. Sobbing Sam took another step. Sobbing Sam took another step as he's as a retreating from the as the Night's Watch is retreating from the fist of the first men, and they're going through the horrors of this terrible, awful battle that they've just faced. They're losing people on the way back, and Sam comes out and he's he be, acts heroically when so many of the other Night's Watchmen are are being cowardly and fleeing from, from something. I mean, obviously Sam's fleeing too, but he actually takes up his, uh, the, the dragon glass dagger and, uh, and stabs the other and, and is the first kill of the others. I think in the, in the entire story, I think he's the only one, right? He's the only one who's actually killed. Another. So far in the books, it's the only time another has been killed. That's yeah. True. Yeah. But yeah. I very, I remember very vividly the first time I read that chapter. I remember exactly where I was sitting <laughs> I remember the light, like it was just, it was such an intense experience. Yeah, they are behind us. They are still behind us. They are taking us one by one. Uh, horror is my favorite genre. That's what I gravitate to the most, always have. Uh, I was a f- fan of Martin's horror writing with stuff like Sand Kings before I ever picked up Song of Ice and Fire. And I really love the moments in the series when he moves in a direction that's m- still, you know, within the context of a fantasy world, but the tone is very much horror and the imagery is very much horror. And yeah, Sam's first chapter in Storm is a great example of that. Just the, the slow, creeping loss that they face on the fist and when the whites come over the wall and just start attacking everybody. It's, it's, it's brutal. And uh, it's, it's extremely memorable. It's a, great, it's a great way to introduce Sam as a POV. Mm-hmm. Um, given, like you said, that he's, he's a, not a martial dude. He's very bookish. And he's put in this, this hideous military situation. But then, yeah, at the end of the chapter, he's the one that finds his courage and hears John's voice telling him he can do it and uh, brings down another. And yeah, it's, 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 it's very inspiring. And then like, I love it. Yeah. At book's end, my favorite Sam moment 
comes when he's he's electioneering <laughs> between Cotter Pike and Dennis Malister. And he's got this great moment when he's lying to them about uh, what Stannis intends to do. Uh, like, you know, name the other one, put the other one in charge if they don't come to an agreement. And he thinks to himself, oh, no, what would I do? What, 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 what am I going to do if they catch me in this lie? And he realizes, wait, what are they going to do? Send me to the wall? <laughs> Kill me? Like, I've seen, like... I've seen, like, zombies and ice demons. Why am I still afraid of Cotter Pike and Dennis Malister? Right. And it's so great because Sam was so dominated by his fear and his feeling of unworthiness and shame. And you can see him starting to move past that and starting to realize that, no, all that was was folly. I'm, I'm, I'm a worthy person. I've seen stuff that most people couldn't deal with. And I can, I can handle this. And he pulls it off. He gets his best friend elected Lord Commander. And, yeah, like I was saying earlier, the stuff at the wall, it starts off so brutally. But by the end of the book, that's the plot line that really gives you a lot of hope. It does, and you know, there's 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 so many great things about Storm. I mean, I could I could just rattle off a couple other minor, not minor things. I mean, the big things. John's arc is terrific. Getting to know the Wildlings and Mance Raider is a, a supreme high point in the books, um, which actually is a contrasting uh, to a weakness of a Dance of Dragons is that the um, the Marinese and the Giscari are not as defined as well in, in dance that, as well as the wildlings are in, in, um, in a clash of Kings and in a, in a storm of swords. Um, things like John's election, I think was really good. So that was another moment where John, uh, is elected as Lord commander that I really love a lot. And then I, I love, I mean, I don't, I know that some people who are contrarian don't love the, the epilogue, but the epilogue for a storm <laughs> of swords is just terrific with merit fray of this hapless asshole who gets, <laughs> off by Lady Stoneheart. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's a great ending. I remember, and then, and then of course, you know, even my, one of my least favorite point of view characters, uh, Sansa Stark, she has that terrific Snow Winterfell scene and Lysa oh, being yeah. pushed through the moon door. I mean, there's so many just terrific moments from A Storm of Swords that they're iconic and they're iconic for a reason and that they are extraordinarily well written. They're well plotted, but, you know, A Storm of Swords, as grave a book it is, as it is, does have some weaknesses as well, right? I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not a perfect book. There are some weaknesses of the book, too. Absolutely. I mean, one thing I was going to mention in terms of strengths was Beric Dondarrion. I think he's a fascinating mm -hmm. character, very inspiring, but also very poignant and sad in a lot of ways. He's got that great speech where he says, you know, can I, can I dwell on what I scarce remember? Are you my mother Thoros? Was I reborn when you brought me back to life? And he's giving it all for the small folk, but he's losing himself. So that's definitely a highlight within Arya's story is the time she spends with Beric. But it takes a long oh, time gosh. to get Arya there. Oh, yeah. She doesn't show up at the Hollow Hill until until her sixth chapter, which is ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, I love the Brotherhood. I think they're fascinating characters. I like Arya's role in terms of she's on the ground. She's quite literally underfoot. She gets to see <laughs> the, the war in the Riverlands through their eyes. But it, it takes... It, it, it takes way too long for her to get in that position. And she has more chapters than anyone else in Storm. I think it definitely could have been cut by a few. I, yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Brent. Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. I get what uh, the book is going for in terms of sort of this slow buildup of Beric Dondarrion and, and hunting for the Brotherhood and this, this you know, it, I think it comes across more as plotting as opposed to like an exciting yes. uh, buildup. It's just sort of, oh, okay, I guess this chapter, Arya's not going to get there yet. We'll see if she gets there in the next one. Um, yeah, I, that was definitely a weak point and for she, me going yeah. out. There's there's very few Arya moments, uh, Arya-specific moments, I should say, from A Storm of Swords that I really remember loving. Um, there are moments from other characters in her chapters that really stand out, but for Arya herself, um, she's a passenger for a lot of it. She's... she's yeah. 
a passage. One, like, uh, one I did like, for example, would be her talking to Gendry and talking to Ned Dane and that sort of, like, childlike interaction with, with her friends. Um, I think that was really strong. But, yeah, for a lot of it, she's 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 along for the ride. She's Ario Hota before there was an Ario Hota. The, uh, Interesting. That's the start camera that rides. Uh, yeah, that's a controversial one. Um. It's a hot take. <laughs> yeah. I think that, no, I think that's a great point, Michael. My problem with it is that she's, yeah, she's not really making decisions for most of the book. Mm-hmm. She's, even though she's such a fiery, uh, passionate character, she is, she's just kind of being, her path is being determined by other people and that makes me connect less to her as a character. Like if you compare it to Brienne and Feast, that's also a storyline where she is very deliberately on the author's part not getting where she she's going a lot of the time and is constantly being frustrated. Mm-hmm. But she's the one making the call. So there is a drama to it because it's there's internal struggles. Like the, the nimble dick side quest uh, has a real, I think, emotional catharsis to it when she says that, I'm sorry I never trusted you. I don't know yeah. how to do that anymore. Yes. Like, that's that's really powerful. That gets at the core of what she's been through. And that, that makes it, for me, work so well that it ends up not working out because that's something she has to confront and reckon with and, and try mm-hmm. to deal with like how can i be a true knight if i'm not succeeding at rescuing the princess like how how what kind of person am i trying to be so there's a real or with quentin and dance he's making decisions he's constantly making the decision to, to to go forward even though he keeps failing and there's i think a lot of potency to that whereas with Arya, you know she does have the line she it seems like she's been trying to make make for river run for years <laughs> and that's great but a lot of the time she's not she's, she's not the one making the call and that's you know part of that is just built into her character she's a yeah, kid right, right. she's being manipulated and managed by the adults around her so it's it doesn't feel out of place but it is i think less interesting than a lot of the other travelogue stories in the series there there is some like I mean, there are some gems in in Arya's early chapters. I think one of my favorite scenes that comes at the end of Arya's first chapter. I, I think like her entire first chapter is is not great it, until it gets to the very end where she has the um uh the wolf dream where she's dreaming of of Nymeria ripping apart the uh, the bloody mummers who are who are pursuing her. And I, I've always, I've, not I've always, but I, I've said once or twice before in the past that that really should have been the chapter open for Arya is her wolf mm-hmm. dream and her and her seeing uh, Nymeria attacking the Bloody Mummers. And, and I think, I remember specifically the Dothraki guy with the with the Arak, if I remember correctly, the, the imagery mm-hmm. uh, being very strong there. But getting to that point was not necessarily strong where they're trying to figure out how to get to where they're going. Um, and that also brings me up to to another point in that uh, a, a character I, I, I love a lot is, is Bran, but Bran's first chapter... The, the climax of the chapter is him deciding to go north, which I understand is is important for his arc, but it's not very interesting. I mean, you have interesting parts of it. You have Bran encountering the little in the cave. Mm-hmm. You have Mira and Jojen build up, which you know works to solidify them as characters. Um, they've they're established in the Clash of Kings, but they become more solid in, in a Storm of Swords, uh, and, and even like Bran too, which has probably one of the, my favorite um, stories in it, which is the Night of the Laughing Tree story. <laughs> uh, that that's that's probably the only thing I, I remember specifically about that chapter is that they're going north and they stop and Mira and Jojen tell tell Bran the story of of the Night of the Laughing Tree, which is a great story. But again, it's you have you have you have gems, but they're embedded around a lot of almost kind of fluff. And um, for a lot of these early Bran and Arya chapters, now of course when Bran gets to the Night Fort, that's a terrific chapter. Like oh, there's yeah. there's nothing wrong with that chapter whatsoever. But his first two chapters, mm, 
good stuff in it, but not necessarily great stuff surrounding the good stuff in it. I agree. A lot of it is build up and backstory. Even the Night Fort is awesome as it is. Feels like uh, it was supposed to be building up to Stannis occupying the Night Fort back when the Fighter Gap was going to be a thing, and that's where he was going to be positioned mm-hmm. uh, in, in the next couple books. Mm-hmm. Uh, but since that didn't end up happening, it feels like build up to events that didn't happen, which is something we've been talking about on the podcast in terms of abandoned foreshadowing in a Game of Thrones. Yeah. A lot of great imagery, a lot of great storytelling. There's the Night of the Laughing Tree story. There's the story about Queen's Crown. There's all the stories of the Night Fort. I love all that stuff. I think Bran, for me, has always worked better as a child, as being as young as he is than, than Arya or Sansa. Because you get stuff like Bran completely misunderstanding the point of the Night of the Laughing Tree story. Like when he says at the end, that was a nice story, but it would have been better if it was a lot more conventional. Because <laughs> that's what I'm used to. And I like that about Bran. I like that he's a little too young to get what's going on. It makes it kind of sweet and sad and scary. Like when he possesses Hodor and doesn't he, just, he doesn't quite get why this is horrifying. Right. And if he was a little older, if it was, I think if Bran was like 14 or 15, if he'd been aged up, hmm. it would be... It would be really hard for me to accept him possessing Hodor as anything but Bran going full evil, because at that point he should be old enough to realize that this is not okay. But as a eight, nine-year-old, I can still, I, I get, I can still enjoy that. But I agree, Bran. There's not much structure to it. It just kind of ends with him getting through the wall. Um, yeah, I agree. Sim- similar problem with Arya, where it's uh, it's. You, it's diamonds in the rough. There's right. great moments, yeah. but the overall structure is not as sublime as something like, like John's. The structure of John's arc and storm is so great. The structure, as I said, of both Davos and Catelyn's arcs are, are so great. Uh, Arya and Bran, it's, it's it's a little more all over the place. Yeah, 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 for sure. Mm-hmm. But you know, the other thing too is some of the King's Landing stuff also kind of drags a little bit too, right? Yeah, early on, especially like if you look at you know the first four books have uh, you know the events in King's Landing as a sort of as a, as the kind of the, the dramatic spine of the books and that's where a lot of the politics is being done a lot of the big decisions are being made a lot of huge plot points mm-hmm. but in game and clash and feast you have your POV character in King's Landing is the person who's in charge they're the ones who's making all the decisions they're the ones setting the policy that you know putting people on the small council uh, dealing with people coming to the king for support or you know you have Ned is the hand in game, you have Tyrion as the hand in clash, you have Cersei as the regent in feast, they're running the show. In Storm, the person running the show is Tywin, and he's not a POV character. Right. Which is certainly interesting in that we are outside him, so we don't see the build-up to the Red Wedding, we just kind of get hints at what he's doing. Like, it's that great moment when Tyrion wonders why the Westerlings would abandon the Lannisters, and Tywin almost smiles, because he's already got Sibel on his side. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's great upon reread. But it does kill the momentum a little bit because Tyrion and Sansa, or POVs in King's Landing, are essentially both powerless. So, again, like I said with Arya, they're just kind of sitting there and stuff's happening to them. I, don't, I gotta say, I don't really like the Tyrion-Sansa marriage at all. <laughs> I don't think it adds much. To, I don't think it adds much to either character. I don't really like their scenes together. Yeah, looking at Sansa and Feast and Tyrion and Dance, I don't really see how that marriage influenced them much. Mm-hmm. Like, Tyrion would still be in a kind of depressive, bitter state he's in without that. Sansa would still be kind of this, you know, training state, kind of wary of Littlefinger, but having to depend on them. That would all still be there. A lot of it does feel like, you know, Martin realizes, oh, I can't really kick this plot off for real until after the Red Wedding happens. So I have to do some things in the meantime. And it does feel like, a lot of it does feel like, let's give them some things to do. Like, I love the Sansa Tyrion wedding scene itself. 
Yes. That's devastating because of the buildup to it where Sansa thinks she's going to marry Willis. Oh, God. And the, just the floor falls out from underneath her. That's great. I love the her Sansa's scene where she meets the Tyrell women. Yes. That's wonderful because mm-hmm. we get the sense of a, a, a female-dominated space that we really hadn't seen at that extent at any time in the series. Tyrion's opening scene with Tywin is, is brutal and beautifully written. You know, it's <laughs> like, you know... Uh, you ask that you who killed your mother to come into this world all that stuff the introduction of Oberyn is awesome but yeah it's like I said the the momentum and the pace from the Red Wedding forward is incredible you, you right. just feel yeah. the build up you can feel like you're just rushing forward it's amazing but for the first two thirds of the book there is some of the plots are meandering not all of them Dragonstone uh, Catelyn and Rob uh, Beyond the Wall all those plots uh, pick up immediately uh, but some of the other ones, yeah, it's just, it's just they're just kind of drifting around a bit. They're just they're they're waiting to 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 start moving, and so yeah, that is a little less compelling. I hadn't actually I hadn't thought of it that way uh, in terms of King's Landing, but the sort of spinning their wheels idea. But now now that you say that, that makes a lot of sense um, with regard to Sansa and Tyrion and their their marriage, because there isn't much they can do until after the Red Wedding has happened and all that. But you can't have half the book without Tyrion chapters or without Sansa right. chapters. You know, George R. R. Martin's not going to write that. And, uh, and he loves writing Tyrion is the other thing. He's he's going to come up with stuff for Tyrion to do. Um, but yeah, it, the... the I don't want to say it's consequenceless, but um, you're right. The, the Sansa-Tyrion marriage doesn't necessarily... Hasn't yet, I should say, hasn't yet uh, impacted them in a huge way in the plot. Maybe when Tyrion returns to Westeros, it's going to be sort of a... Uh, Chekhov's gun type situation, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I I agree with you. I hadn't thought of that before. Um, I think that's interesting. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's referenced a few times in Sansa's feast chapters mm-hmm. and in Tyrion's dance chapters, where where Tyrion brushes Penny off by saying, "Oh, I I can't do anything with you because I'm I'm a man wed." You know, he uses <laughs> as as the excuse to get away from from kissing Penny because he doesn't have any any uh, sexual attraction to to Penny. But it doesn't. You're right. It doesn't have any payoff yet. Um, it, it doesn't have any payoff in the in the show either, right? They haven't Tyrion and Sansa haven't met by or haven't remet by the end of season seven, correct? I believe you're right. No, they have not, because she didn't come. She didn't come yeah. south. Yes, uh, with John. So she was up so, in Winterfell. And he hasn't gone north. I think Tyrion yet. may yeah. have asked about her uh, when he saw John, but now that I'm saying that, I don't. That scene doesn't stand out in my mind. So it must not have been that good. <laughs> Interesting, but but I mean, there's uh, I, there's stuff I like in the early Tyrion and Sansa chapters. You referenced the the Tyrell uh, mm-hmm. meeting the Tyrells. I think that was a that was a great scene. Uh, Sansa's second chapter is one of my least favorite chapters in A Song of Ice and Fire, which is the the infamous or famous, if depending on your your POV, the dress fitting scene. I understand why it was it's in the books, but I didn't, don't really enjoy it a whole lot uh, as a chapter. Um, Tyrion's chapters. I the funny thing is, is I was I was thinking about this as I was re- reviewing the notes, and I don't actually know much about what happens to Tyrion before uh, he marries. Um, before he marries Sansa, mm-hmm. I know that I, I do enjoy. There's Tyrion three uh, has a really great small council scene where Tywin and the Tyrells are all kind of plotting and they're doing their politicking, and you kind of get a what's going on in the land. You have Balon Greyjoy, the idiot that he is, petitioning Tywin Lannister for an alliance uh, after he's already done what the Lannisters already want. Uh, th- those are those are good scenes, and they do have a lot of, of setup too, because you also have that scene where um, 
the Terrells are told that over or that the Martells are coming up for the uh, the wedding, and um, what's, what is it that Tywin says something like just totally ridiculous, like they will want to have vengeance for for what happened to Elia Martell and the children. And Tyrion's like, well, why, Father? Wouldn't that be <laughs> have vengeance against you, sort of thing? And then he, he, Tyrion's also looking at the faces of the different people, and he says that Lord Redwine didn't care, but um, uh, Mathis Rowan looked like he was he was fit to be choked or something like that. Yeah. So that that has, that has some definite setup. Come, you know, a Dance with Dragons, or rather, not even the Dance with Dragons, and the Winds of Winter, because you have Aegon, the the alleged Aegon, the sixth Targaryen, the alleged son of um, Rhaegar and Elia Martell. Showing up in the Stormlands with uh, Mathis Rowan being also in the Stormlands as well outside of Storm's End. But yeah, so there's actually, there's it's interesting. We've only talked about Westeros, but there is <laughs> one plot line that is outside of the Westeros continent, and that is the plot line of Daenerys Targaryen. Uh, it's interesting that it didn't come up in our the strengths of A Storm of Swords. Um, is it actually a strong plot line, Storm of Swords? Is it, do you enjoy it? Is there... Or do you not like it? I mean, you could be honest. I mean, or controversial, or or throw throw out a hot take. You are darn tootin'. It didn't come up in the strength section, buddy. Um, <laughs> I um, I'm of the opinion that Danny in Storm is uh one note. Um, she she leaves Karth. She starts wrecking the cities. She takes different tactics with each city, certainly. You know, she, she approaches each situation differently. But I think... And this is this is going to lead into stuff we want to talk about with dance, so I'm, I'm going to try and not, yes. not uh, write an essay on it here. But <laughs> I think a lot of what happens in Slaver's Bay in Book 3 is very surface level with Danny. Um, yes. It's her sort of just blasting through obstacles. And there's obviously great moments. I mean, Dr- it's Dr- too easy. Dracarys yeah. is, you know, a classic, uh, iconic moment from the from the books. Um, but, yeah, it, it's very much just sort of knocking down chess pieces without any real feeling that Danny's in danger. I mean, I think the, the most danger she's ever in is from uh, Miro when he tries to sneak into yes. the camp and kill yeah. her. And I, I, I mean, I never took that seriously as a threat. Reading that chapter, I wasn't like, oh, no, Daenerys is going to die now. It was, <laughs> oh, here comes this joker. Um, so, uh, yeah, Danny, um, look, I, I, uh, I know I'm a brave person for saying this, and uh, I don't expect any accolades or anything, but if you want to throw them my way, that's fine. But, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily see her storm stories being all that strong. Um, what do you guys think, though? What do you guys think? I'm curious. Agreed. Jercaris is an amazing moment. That's another one where you remember the first time you mm-hmm. read it. Uh, it's, it's really, really just inspiring. You pump your fist, and it, it, it sets the course for the rest of her story. You feel a lot of momentum. But yeah, like you said, after that, she's never really in danger. She's, it's, she's just running through. You don't get a sense of what her goal is. Uh, you know, before she decides to stay in Marine, it's just like, what's... This is kind of cool, but what's the plan? Like, you were originally going to buy these soldiers and go back to Westeros with them. Now you have them on your side more willingly, but when when are you going to start marching? Why, like, at what point do you... It feels like 
she's going to pick some arbitrary point to stop conquering and go home. Right. And like with Arya, at least you have the goal. She's making for Riverwind. With Bran, you have the goal. He's trying to get to the three-eyed crow. With Dany, it's just like, what's the what's the thing? What are you what are you really trying yeah. to accomplish? And Dance gets much more heavily into that. But yeah, I agree. Mero uh, never really felt like a real threat. It just felt like an easy way to expose Arston Whitebeard's identity, which was obvious. That's that's the least yeah. least surprising identity reveal in the series. Uh, I knew who he was immediately, and that you know, it's watching him be a badass is fun. Watching Strong Belwas uh, be a badass in his his duel that's fun. But yeah, it's it everything just like you said. It just feels like a series of obstacles. Danny is moving through really really quickly without much time to linger and figure out what's going on. And uh, Danny. Uh, for me also is a consistent problem throughout the series and that her supporting characters are really, really weak, mm. uh, mostly undeveloped. Uh, I think I'm not a fan of Jorah Mormont at all. <laughs> I think he's way too one note for such a prominent character. <laughs> uh, and I don't, I don't really, I don't really get much out of their relationship. Danny has this really weird sex scene with Eerie, which oh, yeah. I think is uh, odd in a number of ways and feels kind of problematic and forced. And we don't really get her perspective and it's never really brought up again. So that's strange. I mean, Martin is not the best at sex scenes. There's some... <laughs> I like John and Egret's relationship in Storm. I think that's one of his better sexual romantic relationships. There's actual... Some, there's a lot of poignancy there and some actual heat, sexually speaking. Like, you know, it's like you, you get the ardor that he's trying to convey. But like when Jorah kisses Danny, or when Danny is sleeping with Eerie or... Uh, or another thing about the Tyrion ones is his relationship with Shay is, is just my eyes glaze over <laughs> in those scenes. Oh, yeah. There's just nothing like... Like I, the payoff is great when she ends up in Tywin's bed and you see how it links in with Taisha and that like thematically emotionally that's great. Mm-hmm. But you know those those scenes are just I'm just I'm just checking my watch. They, there's just nothing there. So yeah, Danny is again like we we're saying about some other storm storylines. The problem is is you have these great highlights, but it just feels like he's he had those highlights in mind and wasn't giving a huge amount of thought to how he was stringing them together. Yeah, so it, it's it's interesting to me in that when I first read A Storm of Swords, like Danny's chapters were phenomenal, right? I was like, mm. Drakara's crush the Yunkai, super smart way of <clears throat> deceiving the Cell Swords, and then taking Marine, and then you have the reveal that Jorah Mormont is a spy, and I thought that was good stuff. Uh, on reread, though, so I, I had this moment in in my recent reread of of A Storm of Swords, which was like 2016 to 2017, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. um, where Danny, they're outside of Yunkai and Danny comes up with this master plan to deceive each of the sellsword companies. And I was, I, I was thinking to myself, I was like, man, this doesn't feel super unearned. It doesn't feel super earned rather in that. How, how, how did Danny go from being the Khaleesi to being in Karth to being this very intelligent tactician on the battlefield when she hasn't had a whole lot of experience. Yes, she saw one battle uh, against the the Lazarine in a Game of Thrones where she watches the Dothraki just crush these people and just brutalize them in the worst possible ways. But I, I didn't see the buildup for her being becoming this master military strategist and coming up with the plan to take Marine, using the sewers to infiltrate the city and rallying the slaves. And, and I, I get why... I understand why that's the case in that Martin is wants to push Daenerys arc kind of as quickly through as possible to get her to Marine. Um, I do have a whole host of questions about what George had in mind for Daenerys five years after after Marine and what he was thinking about in that way. 
and I guess you know something that 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 George has talked about is that a lot of these characters in a five year with a five year gap in mind would have already completed their training. So mm-hmm. we get Daenerys five years after a Storm of Swords, and she's a, a, a smart politician, able to lead. Uh, politically and reach compromises in, in ways that uh, wouldn't normally occur to someone who is, I mean, Danny's what, 16, 15, 16 years old in, in a storm of swords into a dance with dragons. Um, but, you know, I, I do, I don't think that would have worked necessarily a whole lot. And again, I will continue to harp on this point that the five-year gap just, I don't believe that it would have been for the best for the story. And I think that Daenerys is one of those ways is like, what's, what's Danny doing for five years? Like just preparing to go to Westeros and learning to lead. Okay. That's great. But you have to actually see that development. Right. I mean, one of of the things though is, is that like Danny's dance with dragons arc is, is in my opinion is very strong. And the reason why it's strong is that she's actually struggling and she's learning the difficulty of compromise and learning that it's that leadership and, and is not easy. That war is, was the easy part in that, you know, uh, the actual po- political side of maneuvering and uh, trying to keep a people that despise her and that she despises at peace with her and her, her party is, is extremely difficult. So Abs- yeah. that, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was, I was just gonna say absolutely that I think Danny's storm arc is maybe even stronger for having a dance with dragons following it. That the the yes. payoff to it makes the buildup feel more justified. And I mean, if I guess not to wrap up our conversation too neatly on Storm, but <laughs> if I were to describe Storm, it would be like you're watching a magic act in Vegas or something. And the first 15 to 20 minutes of the act are like sort of Joe Bluth dancing to Final Countdown. Um, like just a lot of waving capes around and stuff. And then, and in the end, he actually turns water into wine and walks on water and like raises the dead. And it's, it's just the most astounding thing you've ever seen. But the first 15 to 20 minutes or so are, uh, you know, sort of a lot of flash, a lot of, a lot of wheel spinning, setting things up for that last part where everything just goes off. But, um, yeah, I I guess that's sort of what, what storm is for me. If I had to sum it up. Yeah. No, that's that's a good way of putting it. I, I agree completely. Uh, the one, yeah, one more thing I would mention since we brought up the fiber gap a couple times in Storm. One of my pet peeves about it is that for a lot of storylines, it it doesn't feel like he was setting it up properly. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that he ended up having so much difficulty with it because, like, he sets up the the death of Balin and the Ghost of Highheart says, and now the Iron Squids turn on one another. So it's like he's setting up for that to be the drama, but he was just going to skip over that entirely or like he was going to skip over the Dornish reaction to Oberyn like that's where the drama is like you have you set up these events in Storm that you want to see the immediate aftermath of in mm-hmm. a lot of cases mm-hmm. yeah or yeah she was he was going to skip Danny learning to be a better politician but for me it's like that you're skipping over the difficult interesting part that mm-hmm. the actual becoming of a, of a skilled politician I mean for me, one of the critiques that comes through a lot in the series is that a lot of fantasy just assumes that part or skips over that part and just gets you to the part where they're 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 doing all the things. And I, I like dwelling more on those, those, those difficult, minute complexities and struggles. And so that's that's one of the reasons I prefer dance. And yeah, a lot of I, I, like I said, I can see why he faced difficulties trying to get the fighter gap together because for a lot of it, I, I feel like Storm 
doesn't really settle up. Or like the the death of Tywin. That's something you want to see the immediate aftermath. Yes. Yeah. I, 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 I'm so glad we got to see Cersei and Jaime and Kevon dealing with that right away. Yeah. Uh, five five years later, just emotionally, the impact would, would be completely different. So the, the interesting thing is, you know, a Storm of Swords, and I think... I think, Michael, you might have even crunched numbers on this. Like, it was like the one, the book that he wrote the fastest. He wrote like a, a crazy number yes. of pages. Like he wrote, I think it was like this longest book that he's ever written. It's even a, a few pages longer than, than A Dance with Dragons. But he wrote it in all of about a, a year and a half, right? Uh, oh, which yeah, is yeah. insane. He blasted through 425,000 words in the span of like 18 months. It's uh, it's just astounding. Um, yeah. It's absolutely crazy. Wow. Yeah, but then comes George trying to do the five-year gap that doesn't work out. He abandons that. And then he starts kind of grappling with his characters and it ends up being that he splits the book to a feast for crows and a dance with dragons. He does it by point of view, which was a controversial decision at the time, probably a bit controversial even now, even though we have both of the books now. Um, But yeah, he, he really kind of, it, it takes him, essentially 11 years to write A Dance with Dragons, counting the time that he was spending writing the book because he had, he was writing John, Tyrion, and Danny and stuff back in the early 2000s that doesn't end up reaching publication until 2011 when he publishes A Dance with Dragons. And when it came out, it was not necessarily as well-received as A Storm of Swords. You, you know, we had read those three um, Amazon reviews at the very beginning of, of this, this podcast. And they're kind of a representation of a lot of what you see. And I remember seeing, cause I, cause I was one of those people that would, I read the book and then would go on Amazon to look at the reviews after the fact. It's kind of a dumb thing. I still do that. <laughs> um, but, but I remember like reading dance with dragons or rather listening to the audiobook Cause again, American don't read. And, um, it, like the 2013, I think is when I finished, uh, rather 2012 is when I finished Dance Dragons. I went on Amazon and just saw a whole host of negative reviews of the book. And my, my feelings of the book, though, were I, I liked it when I first read it, but it was not necessarily my favorite of the story. My favorite, of course, was Storm of Swords, where all the interesting and crazy stuff happened. Trakar is the Red Wedding, the Purple Wedding, John being coming Lord Commander, Lady Stoneheart, all those types of things. But yeah, so I, I guess to transition us to A Dance of Dragons, I, I figured I would ask just one question to you guys. What was your initial impression about the book? So you, the first time you read through the book, you've closed the book or you hit the stop button on your uh, CD player because people <laughs> listen to CDs, right, in their car, uh, of, of the audiobook. What was your guys' first impression when you read the book? Evan. I loved it on the whole. I w- it was my first time through. It was my favorite. Uh, I don't. I didn't love it as much as I do now. Uh, now it's by far my favorite. But I, I loved. I loved everything about the northern half immediately. Yes. I, I still think that if you just want to isolate that on its own, that is the best work George Martin has ever done. Uh, John's leadership arc, uh, Theon's kind of brutal trying journey back to himself. Davos's chapters in White Harbor are perfectly written. I love Asha. Her, her chapters with with Stannis on the march are really well developed. Bran's kind of crazy psychedelic stuff beyond the wall is right in my wheelhouse. All that stuff I think is amazing. And I and I and I love I loved how it ended. I know people were frustrated with how the Northern Plot ended, but I think the Pink Letter. I love the mystery it cast over what happened at Winterfell, and I think it brought brought John's kind of internal struggle to a perfect head. Interesting. So I loved all that. 
The uh, Eastern stuff, while I loved Quentin right away, uh, some of the Tyrion and Danny stuff didn't sit as well with me as, as Quentin. Uh, the ending felt kind of choppy. Uh, Barristan felt, and still kind of does feel, f- kind of forced as a POV. <laughs> I know he originally wasn't supposed to be one, and I think you can kind of tell. Part of me still wishes that, uh, like you had, if you had Grey Worm or Missandei as a POV, that might have been more interesting and might have kind of dealt with the peoples of Essos being behind glass problem that we alluded to earlier. And uh, and one, and we'll get into this when we get more into weaknesses, the, the chapters outside the North and East felt horribly distracting to me. You got a couple chapters in King's Landing, a couple chapters in Bravos, one in Dorne, one in the Stormlands, one in the Riverlands. Those, those for me completely took me out of what was going on. And that is one thing I think Feast does have over Dance is Feast is a very focused book. You know, all pretty much all the storylines in Feast are about dealing with death and the aftermath of it. Uh, they're focused almost entirely on the southern half of Westeros. Uh, I know people thought it was boring or ponderous or whatever, but for me, it was uh, more than any other book in the series except Game. It's very focused. Dance is definitely scattershot. Martin bites off more than he can chew, and the splitting the books by POV became more of a problem when you have characters suddenly returning from Feast out of nowhere. Like, right. I love Cersei's chapters in Dance. Yeah. yeah. And I love themselves. Both those chapters are amazingly well-written. But, like, you're three-quarters of the way through the book, and suddenly the main character from Feast is back. Yeah. And it's kind of hard to get emotionally invested because the build-up was in another book that you read six years ago. Mm-hmm. So it it doesn't... the. I think it's a fair criticism of Dance that the whole is less than the sum of the parts individually if you break down the chapters i think it can go toe-to-toe with storm in terms of iconic scenes and moments but uh it's it's choppy it's messy um i'm fine with that i i I like it when artists overreach a little bit in the name of of something grand (laughs) I, i think that's that's fun but i i understand that as a criticism so i i shared some of the criticisms you would find in those kind of amazon reviews that you mentioned too over time writings of stuff like adam fellman at the mirror and these blots uh, stuff that uh, St- stefan sasse has written about the books over time i gradually developed more an appreciation from the mirror and side of things Interesting. i still think the north part is considerably considerably stronger but yeah i love dance I, I i love dance right away and i think i definitely well i said i understand the criticisms of it i think it got a bad rap um by people who we're expecting it to be more like Storm, I guess. I don't know. One of the things I love about Dance is we were talking about this with Danny, how seriously it takes what happened in Storm and mm-hmm. wants to really explore what the aftermath of it is. Like with Tyrion, I know people were complaining that you know nothing really happens and Tyrion's just a jerk and like it's like well yeah, but look what happened at the end of Storm. Right. Like his life fell yeah. apart. Everything was destroyed, destroyed psychologically, and he committed these murders. And it's like of course, one of my problems in the show is that Tyrion's just fine now. He's just fine. Yeah. He's fine. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's just drinking and saying things like that's and that's Peter Dinklage is great fun, but there's just no integrity to that. Yes, like you have to linger on on the kind of horror that he went through at the end of Storm and the horror he inflicted. Like, and if you're going to be taking him to the kind of dark places, I think George is going to be taking him in winds. You have to really establish that. I think you could definitely cut a couple chapters. Twelve is too many for Tyrion. <laughs> like, you don't need two chapters on the boat. On the Celesauri Corrand, you don't need that. You don't need two chapters with Illyria. You could probably get both of those done with one. But the overall tone and feel of his storyline, I think, is absolutely essential. So I didn't quite... I wasn't quite into that at first. 
because I loved the feel of Tyrion's chapters in the first three books so much when it was he was it was just a lot of fun and he had a lot of quips and he was, you know, kind of more like a modern reader than a lot of the other characters. So I missed that. But as I gradually thought about it more as I reread the book, I realized how appropriate it was and that it would have felt really hollow if by the end of that book he was just the same old person. Yes. It would have felt like it, yeah. it didn't mean mm-hmm. anything that he killed his dad and his lover. It has, it has, things have to mean things. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and I think a lot, of the, a lot of the complaints about dance felt like to me almost perversely like they weren't giving Storm enough credit for how, much, how many things he wiped out in Storm. Yeah, I, I, mm. I totally agree with that. And, and before I before I totally agree with that, um, <laughs> interesting little bit of trivia. Um, you you had mentioned in your your uh, your monologue that the Cersei chapters felt horribly out of place, and there's a reason for that. Uh, Martin had wrote those chapters for the Winds of Winter, and then at some point, very late in the in writing a Dance of Dragons, he decides that no, they should. I'm going to put them in Dance in a Dance with Dragons because they they operate almost like Cersei's first. Winds of Winter chapters, right? Where you're reintroduced to the character and then you have a major event happening in her Walk of Shame and the introduction of uh, Sir Robert Strong and the reintroduction of Kyburn, Kevin Lannister, all those types of things. But I I, I don't want to get too far into the minutia right now. I'm sure we'll have the opportunity to talk more minutia now. Michael, what was your first impression of A Dance with Dragons when you read it? I remember thinking very vividly when I finished it the first time, that I had never read a fantasy book like this. Um, and I, Feast, I obviously felt that too, because it did similar things. But Feast has more sort of quests. Um, you have Brienne's adventure. You have sort of Jamie wandering around the Riverlands doing military things. But so much of dance is not... I mean, I mean, there's a lot of military fantasy, but so much of it is just character work. Um is just yes. Tyrion bopping around on different ships for like half of the book, um, or or Quentin, of course. I mean, uh, obviously there's there's plenty of military action in Quentin's chapters, but there's, it's so different from what you might have expected from sort of an adventurer or anything like that. Um, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about Quentin, I know. Um, <laughs> I I do remember being there was a point in reading it for the first time, maybe like three quarters of the way through where I went, Oh, Oh, I guess Danny's not leaving for Westeros in this book. Is she like uh, for a while there, I was waiting for it to happen. I was waiting for the trigger. I was waiting for her to take off in her ships. And then I realized it wasn't going to happen. And I enjoyed her chapters much more from that point on when I stopped, um, sort of stopped worrying and, and learned to enjoy the, the bomb, yeah. so to speak. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I just I just remember thinking that that, that I I had never read a fantasy novel that was quite this uh, contemplative about itself. Um, so that's so, but but you haven't said whether you liked it or not. You're saying it's contemplative. You're saying that <laughs> you when you first read it, it yeah, was something you yeah. had never read before. But I'm not getting the sense that you were like, oh, I've just loved this. Like it was so good. So I okay then uh, I did enjoy dance. I came away angry at the end that I didn't get the <laughs> conclusions to the battles that I was I was waiting for. I was definitely one of those readers who went, but wait, wait, what happened? What happened at Marine? Like, where's where's the rest of the story? Um, which on rereads, like I said, once you sort of know what's happening or accept the conclusions of what's coming, I think it's a much easier book to enjoy because you can really settle into it instead of constantly looking ahead and trying to go, oh, okay, well, how's it going to end? You know, like, how's this battle going to turn out? Um, right. I did really enjoy it when I finished it, though. And I, 
I mean, I, I like to write as a hobby, um, fiction and fantasy. And I remember wanting to go write after I finished, uh, reading dance, which is something that happens after I finish good books. You know, it, when you, when you read things with good ideas or whatever, you want to just steal them and, and put them in your own stuff. And that's what happened with dance. So I would, I would say I came away liking it. I've definitely learned to like okay. it more. Um, storm was probably my favorite at that time. Um, for, for the reasons you said, Jeff, I mean, yeah, you've got the Red Wedding, you've got Joffrey, you've got Dracarys, you've got, you know, John's epic multi-chapter battle against the wildlings, all that great oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But, but dance uh, is definitely one that I've, I've settled into. It's now, it's now like an old friend. It was kind of hard to meet at first, but now it's, it's very <laughs> comfortable to be in those chapters. Um, and there's so much to dig into there that, that you could just go on forever and, and never run out of stuff. So one of the, the things that kind of, I remember this very vividly, I remember it was John's fourth chapter in A Dance of Dragons. It's a great chapter. It's it's where John is is talking with, um, with Stannis about what Stannis is going to do to try and take on the Boltons. And I remember looking down, because I was driving, because I, I, I generally do audiobooks as I'm driving because I have a two-hour round-trip commute to work. And uh, I remember looking down, and I think it was, and uh, somebody will correct me, I'm sure, on Twitter, because people love correcting me on Twitter. Uh, but I remember it was like eight, it was like at the seven or eight hour mark, and there was like 47 or 48 hours total. So I was like, all right, great. We're going to get the Battle of Winterfell by the end of this book, for sure. Absolutely. Because Stannis <laughs> yeah. is marching out now. We're going to get this great battle at the end of it. And, and then I, I remember look, I remember when Theon got dumped off in um, Stannis' camp in the Crofter's Village, and I'm like, there's like three hours left in this book, man. Like they're not going to get to this battle. And then like, I just, I practically threw, I practically, well, I practically punched my dashboard when Barristan's chapter ends with them throwing the, the bodies into the, uh, into Marine. And then the next word was epilogue. I'm like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. No way. <laughs> like you're like, it felt, it, it to me, it yeah, felt like a yeah. letdown. And, and I, and I, I, I will, I'm will fully admit to having that kind of pleb opinion at the time that, you know, dance would have should have ended with the battles and because it didn't end with the battles, it was a lesser book. Um, but in the years since I've initially read the book, I've come away with a much stronger appreciation for the book. And, and I think and I'm going to restate things that both of you guys have said. I think the character work is just phenomenal in, in so many of the different arcs, Daenerys, John, Theon, Quentin, mm-hmm. Asha, all of these characters, I just I, I go back and I reread them now, and I'm like, yeah, I can see where Martin is is being, why he struggles so hard with this, because he has to. One of the things that George has said is that, and people kind of mock him for this now. They've they've said like, what was he said? What was Aragorn's tax policy? Did he have a standing army? Did he have what was his what was his actual politics? Like, you can't just have he ruled wisely for 150 years. Like that's not the type of world that Martin wants to explore. I mean, it's it's great for Tolkien, and I you know the Lord of the Rings books are pretty good, <laughs> all things considering. Um, but Martin wants to take it a step farther and to take a look at what it actually means to rule well. And I think the the leadership arcs that Daener- Daenerys and Jon have are superb in A Dance with Dragons. I think they, when I go back now, I look at them and I see the amount of thematic and psychological work that Martin is doing here because he's he's also he's examining their leadership but he's also examining their psychology and how they're making decisions and I think that's just terrific in terms of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there are of course like all of criticisms of a dance dragons which we'll talk about here in a little bit but uh but when i go back now i look at it and i'm like this is probably martin's best work as of yet i can't wait for the winds of winter so we can hopefully get martin's even his best work yet to come uh which i think will be the case but we'll we'll have to see for that to be sure um but yeah, I, I, and I'll totally admit too, like that I was, I, I was, you guys are going to probably stab me across the screen, the computer screen here. But I remember thinking that Quentin's arc was essentially pointless by the end of the book. I was like, okay, yeah. so his entire purpose was just to get burned. Great. Fantastic. Yeah. I can't believe that I just wasted my time with caring about this character a little bit, even though I didn't care about him all that much at the time. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so, uh. I figured maybe we can talk a little bit more because we've kind of like hinted at it, kind of bounced around a little bit more about the individual strengths you guys see in a Dance of Dragons. Then maybe we'll transition into the the weaker parts that you guys are are looking at. Sure. I think, I mean, the strengths and weaknesses for me go hand in hand because like you said about Martin's comment about Aragorn's tax policy, and this is one thing I do love about George, and this is a criticism you can make, I think, of all all three of us too at certain points (laughs) is that he's kind of of pretentious. (laughs) About stuff like that, when he talks about you know Aragorn's tax policy or not liking not liking black and white characterizations, it's like he's not wrong. But then you look at the books and it's like, dude, you created Gregor and Joffrey. You are totally fine with black and white characters. You you are right, or like you know, or that you you find him struggling when he comes to John and Danny's leadership arcs in the Dance with Dragons because it's very admirable that he wants to kind of dig more into the minutiae of leadership than a lot of fantasy has. But the problem is the minutiae of leadership is boring. Yes. No one likes that. Leaders don't like that stuff. No, it's it's mm-hmm. not in council. Council meetings in and of themselves are not interesting. Legislating in and of itself is not interesting. Peace, and this I think is a very thematically important part of dance. Peace is not dramatic compared to war, because peace is when huge epic arcs are not happening and people just get to live their lives, which is great and wonderful. But in terms of genre fiction. Mm-hmm. There is a reason people prefer Storm because Storm is where the fighting is happening. Storm is where you have slave rebellions and wildling armies and people getting massacred. Like that stuff is just is is easier to make dramatic than, you know, John deciding how much food he has to put away or who's going to be in charge of the different castles on the wall. It's not that that stuff is inherently boring, but it's much more difficult to make dramatic in a genre fiction context. So he set himself kind of a trap there, and I think he mostly pulled it off. Uh, I love, and I think he pulled it off because, as we're saying, he rooted it in the characters. He rooted it in their struggles, mm-hmm. John and Danny especially, and their backstories and what they want to accomplish. And something I love about dance is that they fail. John and Danny both at the end walk away, and they both say, you know what? Screw it. I'm done. I yeah. can't do this anymore. Yeah. John is, I want John, they both want to just go back home, and they can't deal with the conflicts anymore. And John gets stabbed for it, and Danny's probably going to kill a bunch of people for it. And I think that's really daring, and I did not see that coming when I opened Dance, because I I, th- I thought, you know, the end is going to be Danny going home to Westeros, and it's it's mm-hmm. going to be just fine. And I thought the you know John is going to, I assumed that the end would be yeah the Boltons are dead, John has brought the Wildlings through, and the others I was expecting the others to show up at the very end of the book, you know, as soon as John has let the Wildlings in, like last few pages are the others show up. And that's certainly frustrating to a certain extent, but part of it is productively frustrating because they're, they're, they're struggling and they're young and they have the, they're, they're failing for relatable reasons. And I, I, think, I think that was really risky and really bold. And like Michael said, not, not a lot of what you see in fantasy. There's not a lot of fantasy that's about failure. Mostly fantasy is about success, is, is, mm-hmm. is, is about grand success stories. Um, 
And a part of that, of course, is that this is the middle of the story, and the middle of the story is supposed to be the darkest aspect of it. Uh, traditionally speaking, in a three-act structure, if you look at, like, The Empire Strikes Back is the classic example of that. But, uh, you know, generally, your your characters are not in huge positions of authority. Like, Luke wasn't in charge of something in Empire Strikes Back. He was just on this very kind of intimate training montage. He and Han only became generals in the third part of the story. And in the in the second part, you have John and Danny in charge. You know the the heroes, the protagonists, the leader, the leaders, the ones you assume are going to save the day at the end, and they walk away. Yeah. And I, I really love that. I love how it's tied into Quentin's arc too, because his arc is all about failure and what you do when you're failing and your best friends die and you commit war crimes and you <laughs> get rejected and then you get burned. And he keeps going because he assumes that the story is going to snap in and save him. Any, any second now, it's going to go like it's how it's supposed to go. Even as he's telling himself, he realizes this is not working at all. And I love that kind of commentary on the genre and how Morton is saying that, you know, that a war zone is actually no place for an adventure and that it's not guaranteed to work out just because your family got murdered unjustly. That doesn't guarantee you're going to get, get your revenge or that it's going to work out. It's, it's really dark and really rich and, sorrowful and and you know there was in those amazon reviews we we uh we started off with a lot of it was about how dance is just kind of brutal and a a, a mean kind of book <laughs> and that's definitely true to a certain extent yeah. there's there's a lot of cannibalism there's there's not much catharsis to the war plots again john and danny both fail but you do get theon taking that jump with jane and for me like that's the heart in your throat triumphant mm-hmm fist pumping moment in the book when he breaks from Ramsey and that chapter is called Theon finally he's not reek anymore he's Theon Greyjoy again like that I, I, I love I love that aspect of it so it's like I was saying I I forgive the overreach in large part because I think most of the ambition pays off and he, he pushes the characters in some some really interesting directions you have you know you have Davos a story with Davos that doesn't have Stannis in it and as much as I love Stannis, I think that's great. You let Davos develop on his own, and you, you challenge him to like, okay, what are you though when Stannis isn't around? Who are you know? A lot of his chapters in Dance are about him going back to his old haunts and the sisters and Whiteheart, remembering what it was like to be a smuggler. And you really get this rich sense of you know. You get that letter he writes to Maria about you know I was a better, how's he phrase it? I was, I was a, a a better smuggler than a knight, a better knight than a king's hand, and a better king's hand than a husband. Yeah. And that's just that's just so poignant and sad and perfect for for his for his characterization and, and stuff like that just just burns out my memory so strongly, and um, so well I definitely agree with Jeff that there was a certain amount of frustration that comes at the end when you don't get the battles and the others haven't shown up and uh, Danny hasn't gone back to Westeros and that is where <laughs> the including the chapters that were not in the north and the east I think really was a bad decision. Because you could have, because I mean, the reason they cut the battles of fire and ice because it was because they literally couldn't bind the book. Yeah. If they had those battles in there, it was just too long. Yeah. So I think I do think you could improve dance by cutting the chapters in King's Landing and Bravos and the Riverlands, as good as those chapters are on their own merits. I think if you cut those out and maybe included the battle of fire at least at the end, I think you could make the book better. But. I don't know the 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 ninety five percent that works just works so well for me that I'm I'm willing to forgive the five percent that doesn't. <laughs> I guess you know a, a little bit of a disagreement actually. Sorry to to and uh, I, I know right we oh, never disagree. finally we disagree. Good good. I, I, I and it's only a very minor one, but I think that Dorn chapter is incredibly important to broaden the context for for Quentin Martell because you have 
Doran thinking that his son is on his way back from Marine with Daenerys and her army. And it's it's like that enveloping tragedy which is coming down on House Martell, um, which we'll probably not even see the end of the, the full tragedy by the uh, by the time that we get to the end of even the winds of winter. But I, but I think that Dorn chapter is incredibly important in in both um, defining uh, Dorn a little bit because we we hadn't seen Dorn or or Dorn Martell since you know he revealed vengeance, justice, fire, and blood. We have Quentin's chapters in in A Dance with Dragons, but I just I, I think that the, that the Watcher chapter is I see where it's at where it might feel out of place, but it doesn't feel out of place to me just because it interacts so well with Quentin Martell's chapters and Quentin failing on his quest to get Daenerys and her dragons. And then Doran Martell flashback to Doran Martell. Oh yeah, they're on their way back right now. If that is actually Quentin, he'll come up the Green Blood and bring the army up that way, as was the plan. And you're like, dude, you are such a fucking moron. But also at the same time, <laughs> like you're like, but you, you also see the tragedy too. You feel like, like well, that doesn't sound right. I mean, we've we've been we've had you know two Quentin chapters by that point in the story. Quentin isn't on his way back now. Like this this is this is not going well. This is not that vengeance, justice, fire, and blood that you was such a, a kick-ass moment at the end, close to the end of a, of a Feast for Crows, has a, a resonance that is, is much darker and much more tragic than, than what we would anticipate if this was standard fantasy fare, right? I totally agree. That's a great point. You do need that, I think, to provide the backdrop to what's going on with Quentin. Uh, that one scene in The Watcher, I think, is essential. The other stuff, like with uh, Balin Swan and uh, the plot to kill Tristane, and then Duran sending off the Sand Snakes to their missions, that does feel... A little like shoving bits of plot that don't really no, interact with the rest of the book in there, but I, I do agree that you you do need that scene for sure. And again, I'm not uh, disparaging the content of these chapters. Like Arya's chapters in Bravos are beautifully written, as we talked about Jeff on our episode on Arya yep. One when you brought up the opening line of the Blind Girl. Cersei's chapters and Kevon's epilogue, the stuff in King's Landing, is terrifically written. Um, it's all good. It just some of it feels like it's. You know, like I said, the thing I love best about Storm is the momentum and the pace in that in that third act. And with dance, uh, it, it's it, it gets derailed at certain points. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, you know, I'm, tr- I'm trying to get into what's going on in Marine, and suddenly there's an Arya chapter and then a Cersei chapter, and it's like, okay, right, but back to Marine. So it's it's a little I'm jumping all over the place. And so I dance, like I said, dance dance works great when you read individual chapters sure. of it. I think once reading the whole thing through, I get why that was a frustrating experience for a lot of people because uh, it, it does a lot of it does feel all over the map. I mean, I, there, I think there is still a point at the end, especially in the north. I think the pink letter is genius in the way that it uh, <laughs> creates this mystery out of the Stannis plot, but also forces John to finally make the decision he's been kind of building up to the whole book. Uh, and I, I, I love how that ends. I think that's terrific, and also because you know the. Like, the Battle of Ice itself isn't the climax. No. You would need the entire Battle of yeah. Winterfell, and I doubt that was ever actually in the works no. uh, for A Dance with Dragons. So, you know, there, there might not have been a really good way to end this book. Like, I look back at, like, you know, Two Towers ends with a cliffhanger. Uh, Frodo was alive, but in the hands of the enemy. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's this is... Yeah. Mi- middle act birthing pains are, a th- are just a thing in stories. It's But... Like I already said, I think a lot of the frustration was just we were waiting so long. Waiting that long for the middle act of a story is just it's, it's not going to pay dividends. Like if, you know, if people had waited 
seven years for the Prisoner of Azkaban, <laughs> they probably wouldn't like that book that much because <laughs> that book is that book is barely relevant to the overall overall thrust and momentum of Harry Potter. It's very much a focused, intimate character story. And I love it. It's, that's my it, that's my favorite of the Harry Potter books, oh, is Prisoner of Azkaban. Same, but man, same. The context, <laughs> is, yeah, it's it's great. I love all that stuff. It's beautifully written, but yeah, the context of it within the story, I think, is it's it's a little a little choppy. But I think that's a great point, Jeff, about uh, how the Watcher interacts with the uh, with the Quentin plot. That is that's definitely so. One important. thing, I mean, it, I I think I agree with you about Cersei and Arya and Jamie. Sort of these 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 interruptions. Um, I think they're the the price we had to pay for the Kevin epilogue because the Kevin epilogue is after Cersei's walk and he gets word that Jamie hasn't been heard from in weeks and it's this sort of I, I, I feel like you can see the calculus going on in George R. R. Martin's head where he's like oh man I've got this great Kevin chapter that I want to end the story with but it's going to talk about stuff that people haven't seen yet and that they really should know about and I guess I got to include them now. And yeah, I, I agree with that's I, a great I, I point. I think you're right, but um, uh, it, yeah, I, I wonder if there was a, a better option somehow for like still getting a Kevin epilogue, still getting that, and not necessarily leaning on those chapters. I don't know. I, I mean, obviously, I'm not George R. R. Martin, and I didn't spend six years uh, trying to figure it out, so I'm not gonna. Well, I think it's guess him too much. It, it's fascinating, like when you take like a step back on the meta side, I. I I don't actually know that Kevin was the, the initially the epilogue character they had in mind because I, I remember this because mm. um, one time <laughs> I did this thing where I went through every single not epilogue entry that George R. R. Martin had ever written and tried to ex- extract every single Song of Ice and Fire information. I remember in 2010, he, was, he said that he was working on the epilogue right now, whereas a year before that, he had decided to include the Cersei chapters. In, in a dance with dragons, I, and I'm not saying that Kevin wasn't already envisioned at the at the time, but he the epilogue was written relatively late in in, in the process. I, I think the last chapters he wrote for dance were some of the ones that even didn't even end in dance, right? I think the some of the early Battle of Fire and, and Battle of Ice chapters were the ones that he was working on close to the the end point where he was pub- publishing the book. But I, I'm I'm kind of getting off off the topic. So more strengths uh, of a dance with dragons. Um, so one of the things that I mean, you talked about was that the prose, especially in the north, especially in the north, like you said that you like the the north chapters the most, and you have a note here about the prose. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Oh sure. I mean, just look at the the Verimir's prologue. Like huh. that that chapter and the writing of it is every sentence is this little jewel and so psychedelic and terrifying and weird. It's so weird. Like you're getting inside the head of this guy who's just led this insane life. It's like as close as we get, I've said a couple times on Tumblr and Twitter, as close as we get to a Euron POV, it's <laughs> Verimir's prologue. Just this, this magical guy who's just used his powers for evil every single step of the way. And you it gradually reveals how horrible he's been. Like you, you, you learn, like he had all these villages just like as his terrified slaves and he like ate his own brother as a dog. It's just like, horrible. <laughs> Like, he killed his own mentor, and he tries, like, there's the woman Thistle, who saved his life repeatedly, he tries to possess her at the end, and there are all these, just these images of, of being a warg, and the snow, and the white, and like, you know, most of Feast was uh, not set in the north at all, so it's been like 11 years for us since we got a chapter set <laughs> in the north, and just, Verimir's first chapter, Verimir's, his Verimir's one chapter of the prologue, 
uh, John's first chapter and Bran's first chapter are the first kind of three chapters in the north, and they all have wolf dreams, and they all have this great imagery of snow and ice and cold, and it's just so vivid and imagery-driven, and you get such a strong sense of place, and you know, which makes sense because so much about the dance's northern half is about the culture of the north and the people of the north and the families of the north and how they feel about what's happened to them and what they intend to, to do going forward. And it, it, it really cements you there. Like when you when Davos goes to the merman's court and there's all this great stuff about him trotting on the paintings and there's like ship's nets hung all over the place and you just you, it's it's not just a room that he goes in. It's just it's you get a, such a feel of who the Manderleys are and what they believe in just from the location. Or you get uh, the you know the Stannis's march in the in the Wolfswood. Uh, is, is, is so, like, the slow grind of it is so beautifully conveyed. Theon's chapters, the prose is incredible, the way he gets you into his mindset and how he's barely hanging on and is just constantly terrified and paranoid and sad, and he just, he's, he, he gets you there. I love all that stuff. And, or uh, the, the Alice Sigorn wedding is so powerfully written, oh, just yeah, the, yeah. like, you know, <laughs> the way, like, let him be scared of me and the way they jump over the fire and the way Sigorn's nervous at first. And uh, it's just amazing. Or like tiny scenes like where John finds a bunch of his, his brothers playing in the snow. And it's just this tiny little moment of peace and happiness. And like, you know, you can just stop and enjoy yourselves. Uh, for me, those moments have gotten richer as the series has gone on. The, the, the little in-between character moments and dwelling on the location and on minor characters, that stuff, I think he's only gotten more and more fluid with. Or, I mean, you have something I was looking back rereading Chunks of Dance is you have, um, you have Ilaria Sands' monologue about, you know, where will it end? And, yeah. you know, the people who killed the Martells are dead and gone. Oberon is dead. Here is his killer. Are we going to keep this going? And are my children going to fight for each other? Is this, where does this cycle end? Uh, you know, really powerful anti-vengeance, anti-war, anti-violence monologue. And then four chapters later, you have Big Bucket Wool delivering an equally powerful monologue all about how, <laughs> you know, when you're an old person facing the end of your days and it's the north winter is coming, there are worse ways to die than bathing in Bolton blood, saving the Ned's little girl. Like uh, a monologue that's about how you can find genuine heroism and meaning and, and culture in, in, in taking a defiant, violent stand against against horrible people. So, And the, both those monologues are true, and clearly the author clearly believes in both of them, even though they stand in complete opposition to each other. And that, that kind of writing is so great. Danny's last chapter has, has this great kind of hallucinatory quality where she's seeing all these visions, but it's also really grounded in her body. She's like, you know, she's has... Uh, she, it's dysentery, basically, and mm-hmm. it's it's that stuff is great. There are moments when the prose falls short, like there's one moment in Danny's earlier chapters where she's like watching these like naked <laughs> yeah. performers, and it's like uh, uh, the sight, the of, sight of her arousal, the sight of their arousal aroused her, or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, and it's just it's so clunky, and it's just amazing that the author, that the editor didn't just strike through that with like a highlighter like a dozen times. But when you compare that to, like, uh, Bran's chapter in the cave when he's having all those visions, mm-hmm. you know, all, all that stuff just sticks in my memory so strongly. So I think you can argue that structurally speaking, it's not as strong as Storm, but I think just, like, word for word, paragraph for paragraph, oh, it's 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 so vivid. And, and I think Michael said it, it doesn't feel like a lot of other fantasy you've read. It, it feels very intimate and, and granular and, and focused and... 
Yeah, that's that's what really come, keeps me coming back to dance is just the writing of it. Yeah, I I agree, and and one of the things that that I have a a, a note about is that there's so many iconic chapters and scenes too. Oh, it's yeah. not just that a Dance with Dragons is oh we're going to go into very in depth into the psychology and into the characters. You also have some great freaking scenes in this book too. Death's Next Pit, The North Remembers, Quentin's Owen is receiving fire and blood. Danny and John's final chapters where you have dragons plant no trees and you have John's assassination. And that's, that's also something, if I could pause there for a second, um, that I just, um, I, I, I love the fact that John's final chapter doesn't end with him intending to march on the Boltons and John thinking, I have my men, I have my swords and I'm coming for you, bastard. It ends with his assassination because that is so freaking subversive when it comes to to fantasy that it doesn't end with this triumphant moment because I remember this very vividly too my first time reading Dance is that finally when John reads the pink letter and then everyone's cheering for him at the end I'm like finally this freaking plot is moving somewhere <laughs> it's moving in the direction that I want it to go where John is actually going to do something and then he gets assassinated which is just it was devastating to me at the time when, when I read it um, but I, but in rereading it and thinking about it now it's it's just it's powerful because it is the culmination of John's of, of all the mistakes that John has made throughout a dance with dragons in his leadership because like Emmett you said that John and Danny are both failures ultimately in, in and as leaders both as the Lord commander of the Night's Watch as well as the Queen of Marine and having both of them kind of give up the queenship and also to give up the Lord command, but also de dealing with the consequences of them abandoning their, their positions of leadership <clears throat> at times of the greatest need. I mean, if you think about it, like John marching South, when the others are, are coming, they are coming at some point in the story and they're the, the more the story progresses towards the dream of spring, the closer they're going to be towards, towards coming South to the wall. And that's, uh, it has a, it had a really big impact to me now. And I, I remember reading, um, Adam Feldman's pieces on John, which are, are terrific. Um, his other wars series in which he talks about that is that John, as much as it's a hell yeah moment for, for us as readers, when John reads the pink letter and then, uh, gives his speech in front of the shield hall and is about to head South that it, it, it's kind of devastating too because he's abandoning the Night's Watch and it's almost his hour of greatest need because the the others are coming. They're already at Hard Home in the story. They're not that far behind Tormund's band because Tormund's talked about how the the others were were seizing people in the middle of the night and coming in the, with the cold and so not that far from the wall either. I mean, John's about to head south uh, for reasons that may not be as important as 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 defending all of Westeros from the threat of. Ice demons who are here to kill every single living thing and turn them into whites. But that's uh, to get back on, on on track. There's also great scenes too, like Barristan versus Kraz. I mean, I know that you, I, I actually love Barristan's chapters in Dance with Dragons. They're, well, they were one of my highlights, uh, and I love that scene where he's fighting uh, Kraz after he uh, accuses his daughter of poisoning uh, Daenerys. And then you have the epilogue scene, which you talked about too, where Varys crossbows Kevin. And then Danny's final chapter, I think, is just, it's my favorite chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. I think I can say that, um, I think even Evan, Emmett, you might say that too, where she comes to that realization that dragons plant no trees and that the Targaryen words are fire and blood, and that's her purpose, to bring fire and blood to the world. And it's, it's a devastating moment because Dan, Danny finally goes off, um, says fuck this to all the compromises that she made, all the political things that she's been trying to implement in her leadership and reign, and thinks to herself... I've got dragons, you know, 
I don't need to make compromises. I, I've been trying to become a good leader. I don't need to do that anymore. I, all I can do, all I need to do is just use these dragons and push forward and seize the Iron Throne. And, you know, Westeros is far away, but it's it's someplace that I'm, I'm going to be going and I'm going to take uh, very violently from the, the hands of those who have taken it from my family previously. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I find A Dance with Dragons iconic scene, chapters and scenes... I find them more compelling even than, than A Storm of Swords, even more compelling than The Red Wedding, The Purple Wedding. Um, but again, that's also a perspective that's colored by by a few rereads and, and some very dense analyses by, you know, Emmett, yours, uh, you, uh, <laughs> stuff on Tyrion and Quentin and Davos is, is terrific. And Michael, your, your stuff about uh, Jon Snow's and his resurrection and how that's really put forward. And um, in a dance with dragons, um, it all works to help augment my perspective and, and create, a, I think, a better one in, in the long term. Yeah, I I wanted to come back to something you were saying there about the leadership um, that the characters, uh, John and Danny in particular, are are showing because there's this really great tension that George R. R. Martin builds in A Dance with Dragons where the characters and the reader both want the same thing. They both want to like cut the crap and just get to the story and neither, and that's not good in in their storylines. If John cuts the crap, then, you know, yeah, he's walking away from the wall, like you said. And when Danny is eventually going to cut the crap when she comes back on her dragon, um, it's a bad thing. She, she's, you know, killing people. She, she's going to lead to destruction and all that. And so I, I think it's fascinating. And that's one of my favorite things about the book is that tension where John and Danny and the reader are all on the same page. And there are these moral reasons in the story that they're presented with and that the reader's presented with um, for why why they shouldn't be following the plot, why they shouldn't yield to the demands of the the genre arc why you know why danny should just give up and marry his dar and and lock away her dragons forever because maybe that's better for everyone and of course of of course i the story doesn't end there and and so it's going to be better in the long run for danny to fight the others with her dragons things like that that you know there's there's more to come it's it, it doesn't end with that moment but it's just a really interesting tension um to have the readers and the characters both struggling to uh, to not follow the story. Um, and I right. think that might be why some people get really frustrated with dance, because the, the characters are frustrated. Danny's super frustrated yes. the whole story. She's just really peeved at everybody and just wants to just wants to, you know, burn it all down, basically, and run away. Um, and the character, the, the reader rather, wants that, too. Um, so I don't know that that was just that was something there, you re, you reminded me of with your. That's a great point, man. I'd never thought of it that way, but that's exactly right. It's that they're feeling the same frustration we are, and that Martin's trying to show that cutting to that easy catharsis is not is would be both bad leadership and bad writing at the same time. Uh, it wouldn't wouldn't be true to to what he's trying to accomplish. Uh, yeah, it's, like I said, it's a difficult task he's setting for himself. But uh, yeah, I love where he ends up uh, with both John and Danny showing that. You know, John has completely lost out of the larger mission. He's not only marching south with the Wildlings, he's sending the Corps of the Night's Watch on a suicide mission to Hardhome after he's already lost Cotter Pike and a bunch of people there. So who is guarding the wall at this point? There's there's no one left. Mm-hmm. And that's that's his job is 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 as Lord Commander. And 
yeah, there's we much as we might want to cheer for him raw raw to take on Ramsey, like the only reason Ramsey is threatening him is because John already fucked up by sending Mance stuff. <laughs> as as much as as much as we would want him to save Arya, as much as that's the heroic thing to do, it's strategically a terrible decision that put the entire Night's Watch at risk. I mean it's something I think the books did much better than the show in this regard is that in the books there's no sign that the Boltons ever intended to mess with yeah. John. Until he messed with them. Like, they're not sending... They didn't send that guy Locke North in the show, but nothing like that happened in the books. They, for all we know, as far as... As sadistic as the Boltons are, they were not intending to, to go get Jon Snow. And he really kind of brought that storm down upon the Night's Watch himself he, for very relatable, human, even heroic reasons, but it's it's still not the proper decision to make. And yeah, Danny making all these concessions for peace while Dario is... is telling her the whole time to trying to unleash her more warlike instincts. Like I love when he says that the way to deal with the, the sons of the harpies to get all of the noble houses and Marine together uh, at a wedding and then butcher them all. He's literally <laughs> advocating for the red wedding. Yeah. And, and, and Danny's and Danny's tempted by it. And like, that's just such a brilliant uh, perspective flip. And it, you know, a lot of a lot of the criticisms of dance, as in those little Amazon reviews we led with, is that it ultimately doesn't mean anything or lead to anything. And it's just a bunch of fluff. But for me, the the overall point of it at the end is this, yeah, interrogation of what it means to be a fantasy protagonist yes. and hero and leader, and trying to challenge our expectations of that. You see that with Quentin, like I said, constantly telling himself that he's the hero and things are going to work out when they haven't the entire time. And you see it with uh, Egan as well, who's kind of interesting parallel and contrast to Quentin in a lot of ways and that he's he's all, all has all these tropes surrounding him as the perfect ideal fantasy hero with the exile and the disguise and this little squad of mentors but you see these hints that it's it's kind of superficial and that he hasn't really internalized any of it and he's making these rash decisions and as is John Connington and it's it's just not going to work out for them and so by the end you have you have Varys' monologue uh, to Kevon about how awesome Megan is and how perfectly he's been raised and he's going to solve all these problems. But that comes right after we've seen with John and Danny and with Quentin how much more complicated it is and how it really doesn't work out that perfectly. And you know, the, the title of the book is the is name dropped by Barristan as "Not all men are meant to dance with dragons," and that's such a kind of chilling, sad commentary on the genre that like. Quentin walked to his death because he thought that the only way to live a worthy life was to do this objectively stupid thing. <laughs> yeah. And what does that say about the mindset of the genre that it leads you to do a thing like and that? And not only Quentin, but but um, Mance. I mean, we were just talking about John sending off, uh, you know, yeah. sort of shooting his own, shooting himself in the foot. But Mance is literally living out the uh, Bail the Bard um, story. And it goes terribly for him. I mean, whether or not the pink letter is literally true, we can assume in some capacity Mance has fucked up. Like, the Spearwives were dying off in Theon's last chapter or being captured one by one. Um, Yeah, it's very similar to this core idea that you're talking about, this, this fantasy protagonist thing where, yeah, just because it's a good story doesn't mean it's gonna work for everyone or it's gonna lead to a good conclusion. Um... And I, I, I mean, like I said, back when we were first talking about the strengths, I'd never seen a fantasy book that did quite that um, with its characters and with so many characters. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a, it's a terrific point, too, that, um, you know, the, 
the characters of John going off and marching south is what the reader wants. But, you know, Martin also inserts, like, basically the reader, the reader point of view in things like Danny's eighth, eighth chapter, which no one will remember now. But it's it's the, the it starts with a, a feast scene where she's the wedding feast with her and, and his star. And she has the Yunkish lords there, and she has this this line in her in her own head, which is totally mirroring what the reader's thinking is. She thinks, "I hate this. I am dining with men I'd rather flay." And you're like, "Yeah, like fuck the Yunkish, <laughs> you know, like yeah. see them all go yeah. down." But at the same time, like that's it, it's it, one of the the great things about Martin is that as as a writer is that he doesn't simply do wish fulfillment on the on the reader's part he is there to provide a store the best possible story and one that defies and exceeds the expectation of the reader because you know at the end of a, of a storm of swords you know danny is the queen of marine john is the lord commander of the night's watch and you you think about these guys these these folks and you're thinking okay next they're going to be engaging the others at the night's watch uh, up at the wall and that Danny is going to gather her strength and then march and then head towards Westeros. Um, and, and, but Danny's a little bit more complicated in that she thinks uh, I must first learn to, to rule before I, I, I go over to, to Westeros. So it's kind of like a um, a bit of an experiment being being the Queen of Marine. But at the same time, though, like you, the reader would get the impression that the story is going to progress rocket forward towards yeah towards the end point, which is the the ultimately the, the struggle against the others, which is you know what comes up in the prologue, right? So the prologue of a Game of Thrones is that the threat, the threat, the threat, the others are there. And we are supposed to always keep that in our, in our mind, in our background. That's something we talked about in our, our very first episode of, of the Nana cast is that Martin establishes the others as the true threat. But then for the rest of the five books, they are on the, on the, um, on the outside, they are on the borders of the, the story. They're, they're marginalized in the sense that they're always there as a threat but they're never really seen on page a whole lot besides in Sam's first chapter, which we talked about previously. And, you know, the readers knows this and, and even subconsciously thinks that the, the story has to eventually go there. But to make it a good story, you have to create and craft arcs that are congruent to these people learning how to rule and failing to rule. It makes for a better story. And it's better that the readers do feel that sense of frustration that a dance with dragons that by the end of the books that Danny's not a Westeros that John has been stabbed that you know all of these different difficult things occurred but there's they're they're important for crafting narratives and, and developing characters in realistic ways that were like yeah it's it's it, ultimately it's it's good writing and ultimately it's better to have Danny spend ten chapters where she's miserable and trying to figure out how to rule and ultimately failing and how her storm of swords arc where she's just blowing through the, the Gascari and slavers Bay is not as fulfilling necessarily as, as her, as her grappling with the effects of rule and the effects of, of her conquest. And I think that's a really good touch on Martin's part, but we've kind of like hammered all of the strengths of a day of dragons. <laughs> and, and I'm sure there's many, much more to say about it, but there are some weaknesses too, and and I think we we've have hinted at, at some of them. Um, I know Emmett, you talked about how the Bravo Bravosi, King's Landing, Riverlands, and Dornish chapters feel out of place. But Marine, since since we're still talking about Daenerys, mm-hmm. what what about Marine? Is it actually is is it good? And is it, is it good? I mean, I I think it's good, but I mean, is it, are there things that are may might be more weaknesses about Marine if we get a little bit more in depth in, into that storyline? I think I would call it incomplete. 
I think it's perfectly fair for Danny's perspective to be one, as she says in her last chapter, that Marine is not her home. It's strange. It's weird to her. She hates their way. She doesn't understand it. I think that's a perfectly fine thing for it to be Danny's arc in the book, but that needs to get challenged. Like we need to know that she's wrong about that. Mm-hmm. That there is more to Marine. That they're a fleshed out culture. But the book basically confirms what she's saying. It doesn't. Martin doesn't seem to be challenging her perspective. Like yeah. The Miranese characters are kind of interchangeable people with one-note motivations and names that are hard to remember. Like that's that's what they are. We don't we don't get a Miranese POV. We don't get someone telling Danny, "No, actually, you're wrong. There is much more to this culture. You need to learn about it." It's just her from atop the pyramid. I mean, his dar is just boring. <laughs> There's nothing to him at all. He doesn't get interesting dialogue. He doesn't get fleshed out motivations. The shave pate is theoretically interesting in that he seems like he's coming up from below and is doing a lot of planning, but a lot of that is really in the background. And, like, the Green Grace just says in passing, Hisdar is Lorak, uh, Skehaz is Kandak. You, 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 you don't know the difference unless you're from Marine. I'm like, but I need to know the difference if I'm going to care <laughs> yeah. about the Shave Page rivalry with Hisdar. Like, it's again, it's fine for it to be behind glass from Dany's POV. That's the point. She's atop the pyramid and doesn't understand it. But we need something else to, to flush that out. Otherwise... I mean, yeah, it's it's then it's just why why do I care about what's what's happening here if you're refusing to to give it any kind of depth and weight in and of itself? I mean, with with the wildlings, Martin did that so well, making us see them as individuals. And there's there's no there's no torment or egret among the Giscari at all. Right. We don't we don't get a sense really of any of them as individuals. Um, even even Danny's followers are, are largely undeveloped. Like I don't really like what they've done with uh, Grey Worm and Missandei in the show, but Missandei. But at least it's something. At least they get scenes to yeah. themselves. At least there's 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 a plot impetus. In, in Danny's chapters, they just like walk on when they have to deliver lines, and then they walk off. So I do. I love Danny's arc on the whole. I think it's perfectly appropriate for her character, as, as we're saying. I do like the theme that. Uh, in Marine, that peace is unsatisfying. I think that's a really clever and, and profound way of looking at it. Because you, you can't write an effective anti-war story if, if you don't include an understanding of why war happens. And war happens for reasons other than just people being terrible. Like, <laughs> war happens because people think they're going to achieve something with it, because they think they're going to find some catharsis, because they really because the people that they want to kill really are genuinely terrible. Like, you know, the Yunkish slavers are awful in every respect. There's no reason to not want to kill them. And I think that's brilliant. But I do think – I think his analysis is incomplete because there's uh, the term of uh, right of response, I think, is the term for it. When you have these ideas in a narrative that are, uh, you know, reductive or racist and that they never get challenged. Like, to be clear, I'm not saying George R. R. Martin hates brown people. That's not my point. <laughs> I don't think this is conscious malignance on his part. I just think it's it's kind of a failure of imagination that he never included uh, the Miranese perspective on things. That, that never comes to the fore. And I think Danny's arc does suffer for it because then it's she's just there. She didn't like it. And now she's going to leave because she didn't like it. And that's, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of deflating. I would say. Not just a, a Marinese perspective, like you would get the perspective of, of quote unquote, her children, you know, the, the ex-slaves who have been freed. You, you, you do have Missande and, and a couple of the other ones that are, are bit players, but they're kind of in the background. 
um, yeah. in a way. Uh, and there's a, um, I think, a, a very legitimate criticism of the the Maronese arc, and, and I've, I've read a number of, of pieces on this, and, and I find them convincing, is that there is a, almost a bit of Orientalism in the depiction of Marine. Um, and mm-hmm. because I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily the smartest person uh, to, to talk this, this subject, I, I ended up doing a little research on it. Um, and it was uh, Edward Said. That's how you pronounce his name, right? Or Edward Said. Sure. I think you're correct about that. Uh, who, who defined it as, quote, the exaggeration of difference, the resumption of Western superiority, and the application of cliched analytical models for, per- for perceiving the Oriental world, unquote. And, and I do th- see that in Danny in that she is saying that she hates these people and hopes to flay them. But she also, we don't really get uh, their perspective necessarily. I mean, you have that scene with his star and Danny where his star is talking about slavery as if we don't, is that his star or is that, um, that, that Carthine dude, that weirdo says we, if, <laughs> Oh, about like how you, you needed to do anything exceptional. Right. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> that's zero Zoan. Yeah. If I'm pronouncing that name yep. close to correct. Yes. Yeah. That's something. I mean, it's something, but it's really, I mean, as a reader, you kind of roll your eyes at it and you're like, okay, uh, <laughs> I guess, but, but it's just so obviously evil. Yeah. And it's just a self-serving justification. And it's just, it's not, it's nothing to do with personality. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's just like, that's the line that Martin needs to have said now by somebody. Yeah. And Zero, and that's the one he's going to do it with. You don't, he's, he's, they're not individuals. They're no. not, they don't, they don't get their, like, again, the Tormund and Egret, like, they're so fleshed out as people. And you understand how they fit into the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in Marine, they just kind of they feel like stock characters, and yeah, I think that the definition of Orientalism hits hits the spot there. It's the 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 the, uh, the the difference goes unchallenged, and there's there's no poetry to it. Like in the Wildlands, you get you know we look at the same stars, but we see such different things. Like there's there's an emotionality to right. it, mm, yeah. and like a, a clear curiosity on the part of the of the of the author that he wants to learn more and wants us to learn more. But in Marine, it's just that that difference, like. We, the way we understand Marine at the beginning of the book is exactly the same as how we understand Marine at the end of the book. Right. <laughs> like, it's never, we never get to know it any better. I, I, to sort of build on what you're saying, um, we know that George R. R. Martin writes from a sword and sorcery tradition. That, I mean, he's talked about Robert E. Howard and other grandmasters and mistresses of sword and sorcery as models for A Song of Ice and Fire. And not just models, but builders of the tropes that he's now deconstructing and examining. Um, so he does question a lot of what they put in their stories back in those days, um, most of which was problematic. Um, I mean, a lot of them don't really stand the test of At time. Best. But I, Marine stands out to me as a city that could easily be uh, a location for a Conan adventure or... Uh, another equivalent sort of sword and sorcery hero of the early 1930s through 40s where yeah it's it's a it's a weird eastern city and they do things different there and they're strange and our main character is sort of a westerner who um sees them as strange and doesn't really necessarily empathize with them and maybe there's a few good ones he can hang out with but it 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 feels very much in that tradition to me, I guess. And like you said, Emmett, I would have expected to see it more interrogated in A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, given how much he, he really does break down a lot of what older sword and sorcery and pulp adventures did. Um, 
Brienne of Tarth is a great example of that. There were women sword and sorcery adventurers back in the 30s and 40s. They were just kind of crappy. Um, they were, <laughs> you know, either written by men who had no idea what women were, basically, or they were written by women but were written <laughs> yeah. for male audiences so hard that it, it made no difference. Um, and so Brienne is a great example of him of him taking apart those older sort of sword and sorcery tropes. Marine, I don't think so much. Uh, it would have been a great opportunity for sort of a back-and-forth point of view throughout the book where you have maybe a central murder mystery or something like that where you have one character, Marine character, Miranese character, or a, a, you know, a, a former slave who's come with Danny um, in the city on the ground seeing things and then Danny up in her pyramid seeing things from a different perspective. That, that could have been a, a really fascinating story. Yeah. Um, I, it even I, has the murder mystery in Marine that's barely, it's like he, he exactly. establishes, and, and if you blink, you would miss it, but there's a, um, a, a Marinese freed woman by the name of Rylona Ree who yeah. is, um, makes a tapestry for Daenerys um, after she's granted the weave of her former master that's in, in Danny's first chapter, but then she's murdered uh, shortly after that, and, and you find out mm-hmm. in, in Daenerys four, I think that she was she was murdered. They went and they broke they, they broke the loom. It wasn't a weave. It was a loom, looms weave. I don't know this shit. Um, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, you have you have, you definitely have that there that you that Martin could have played with and having like Missande or having uh, Masador. That's Missande's brother who could have you know been a mm-hmm. point of view character. These very minor characters that the Martin could have explored more of the culture and more of things around the ground. And I do kind of you do kind of get the feeling that it's a thirty thousand foot above you of Marine uh, in, in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. Even when you get to Barrison's chapters, they don't really take place on, on in the streets of Marine until like he's actually like marching his army towards the gates in, in his early Winds of Winter chapters and then they're fighting outside. It, like it all takes place inside. The, the drama and, and the scenes take place inside the Great Pyramid of Marine. Um, it, it, and, and, I, and I think I might have overspoke a little because you do have, you know, Danny and her um, carriage going through Marine and stuff like that. But it's, it's, it's also, it, it's also done. It's, it's done through a veil almost, right? Even when her chapters are, are mm-hmm. going through the streets of Marine, like she's covered up in, in this, in this wagon and she's not, she's seeing some things, but it's, it, it's all within, it, it's all, there's, there's a separation between the, the main characters and events that are going on, on, on the ground there. I think her, yeah, her one major moment, uh, if I remember right, it's been a little while, of sort of connection coming coming down out of the ziggurat is when she goes out in front of the city to walk through the camps of the pale mare sufferers. Ah, uh, right, yeah, and that's like right. her biggest sort of among the people moment. But um, feels very similar to sort of the Misa type. It it didn't necessarily do do anything particularly different for the story. She walks around, she meets a bunch of people who are her quote unquote children. Um, we get a little world building about the like the nameless goddess of death that the unsullied worship or something, and then she goes back inside the city. And so it's not it's not really like a, a subplot. It's just a scene where she walks around a little bit. Um, the story doesn't inhabit that space. It's still Danny removed from these people. I mean, and it, it's even there's no stakes for her because she's she's convinced she can't get sick. And as the reader, maybe we don't believe her, but it's. Uh, it's not like she's going down there at great personal cost. She's like, ah, I'm, I'm a Targaryen. I can't suffer illness, um, which, as it turns out, might not be true. But um, 
that's that's sort of a uh, something that comes up a little later in the book. True, and that's fine for Danny. That makes sense for her arc yeah. in which she's going through in Marine. Mm-hmm. But it, it it yeah, there's like one of the overall I think interesting tensions in the series. I won't necessarily call it a problem because we haven't finished yet, but. <laughs> It is an interesting tension in the series that one of the overall points is, you know, the uh, the innocent suffer most when you high lords play your Game of Thrones, and the, the common people just want a summer that never ends, they just want to be left alone, and that, you know, all, all these conflicts are, are, are really just destruction being rained down upon the majority of people by these detached nobles. And that point comes through very strongly and emotionally throughout the series, but pretty much all the POV characters are nobles mm-hmm. and pretty much all the drama is about their concerns and their concerns are heavily shot through with caring about who wins these wars and caring about why you're fighting mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, you can see sometimes Martin is struggling to manage that in Westeros. He has the kind of the solutions as he has a POV like Arya or Brienne, who's on the ground yeah. talking to small folk, they're nobles themselves but you get a much richer sense of how the small folk are experiencing the war and the overall take on things. And so that fleshes the story out from characters like uh, Tyrion or Catelyn, who are almost exclusively concerned with the, the goings-on between the nobles. In Essos, you just you really don't get that. You get it a little bit with Tyrion in Dance and with Quentin in Dance when they're traveling around, but they're so interiorized and focused on their own... Uh, struggles and their own sadnesses that you still don't really get a connection to it. Mm. So you, you, yeah, you need you need an underfoot POV in Essos the way you get with Arya and Westeros. <laughs> so you can you can get a sense of that ripple effect. And in Essos, you just never get it. So it's you know when it's going to be really cool in when we get to the collapse of the Slaver Coalition and Winds of Winter and the uprisings in Volantis uh, that has been heavily foreshadowed in Dance. That's going to be viscerally awesome. But I'm I don't think I'm going to feel it in the same way I felt the Brotherhood because yeah. that was built up and that we were, were firmly ensconced within that world of the Riverlands. It's going to feel, I think in Essos, just more like another beat in Danny's story. And as I've stressed, it works perfectly fine in terms of Danny's story. Mm-hmm. But I think I think it is a, a, a disappointing aspect of, of how he's handled things in Essos that makes it kind of harder to connect. So if, if you're talking about you know, why Marine turned off so many people, why they were so uninterested in it. I think, I think a lot of it is that even if people aren't consciously thinking about that issue, uh, I think it comes, I think it comes through in terms of why people might find those chapters boring because you're not connected to, to the setting. Your, your sole connection is to Danny herself. So those are all really good points about Marine. And I think those are, are things that, you know, folks, if, if you guys are rereading A Dance of Dragons and, and reading through Danny and, and Barrison's chapters and Quentin's chapters and Tyrion's final chapters in, in A Dance of Dragons, you know, be aware of that, that there's there is something a little bit off about them. And it, it's off in terms of how they're they're written and they're not necessarily written as well as, as they could have. But it, that doesn't mean that Marine is, is a terrible setting. In fact, uh, I, I would say that and I think we would all agree that Danny's uh, chapters in Dance are her best in terms of establishing her psychology and establishing some of the thematic framework that she'll be, she's operating in and against throughout the, the entirety of, of her arc there and will have major ramifications come the winds of winter. Um, to kind of talk about some of the more smaller weaknesses uh, from my perspective, and I'll, I'll just bullet point a couple of these. Uh, some of John's midpoint chapters are could have been combined, in my opinion, 
John 5 and 6 and John 8 and 9. Uh, both probably could have been one chapter apiece. Uh, John 5 starts with John. Uh, John going out to the wildlings and hanging out with them for a while and getting some of them to join the Night's Watch. And John 6 has, and also having him um, think about how Melis- uh, the wildlings are suspicious of them because of Melisandre, because Melisandre has burned Mance Raider, and they think that Melisandre's after them next and wants them all to, be, to convert to Relore, which is not necessarily true, but also not necessarily false, but also not not totally untrue as, as well. And then John six also has John and Melisandre. That's how it concludes with Melisandre offering to birth shadow babies with John, which would have been a good, um, uh, ending, I think for the introduction to John's own suspicions, as well as those of the wildlings and then having Melisandre there. And then eight and nine, eight is John and Val heading out. And then nine is, um, so it's a, is the arrival of Tycho Nostoris, and uh, I think those they, they like I said, we, it is important to kind of get John counting the beans and the bullets type thing, which is a major part of his arc is as the Lord Commander and how that is boring. But I do think that there is some aspects that they could have been combined to make more dynamic chapters, and I, and I do think that it's not necessarily. Uh, it's it's not to Martin's fault that we, these are separate chapters, and that Martin greatly expounds upon John's struggles. Uh, but I, but I do think that in, on reread, there's there's a little bit of almost bloat. I would say not they're not bad chapters, but they're not necessarily the most exciting chapters either. Agreed. I think yeah, there are everything in between when Stannis leaves and when Alice Karstark shows up. That's definitely the weakest parts of John's story and dance. Those those mm-hmm. few middle chapters uh, because. As I said, you know, Danny, I think, has the weakest supporting cast of any POV. I would say John has the strongest. I, I love all his supporting characters in pretty much all of his books, yes. but especially in Dance. I love his di- I love his dynamic with Stannis. There's that great moment when after he executes Janos, Slint and their eyes meet and Stannis <laughs> gives him the paternal nod of approval. That's just so, so good. I love that. And uh, like I said, the Alice Karstark wedding is great. Everything when Tormund shows up is great. Uh, I love the ending with the pink letter, like I said. But yeah, the middle chapters, there are, there are a couple too many of them. I'm kind of having difficulty remembering what happens and right. which. Yeah. Like you said, a lot of them probably could be combined. And I've talked to people about about dance who don't like it, and that is the complaint that comes up is that the middle of the book was a slog. <laughs> uh, and that, you know, they, they liked a lot of the stuff at the beginning. John and Stannis, the kind of murderers in, in, in Marine. Uh, and they like a lot of the stuff at the end, uh, when you get like the ramp up with Barristan is exciting and, uh, you know, the Tormund bringing the wildlings to the wall, Theon taking his jump, you know, everyone likes that stuff. But yeah, the, the middle chapters are a little hazy and I agree for John that, uh, as much as in theory, Martin is doing the right thing with John's character in terms of focusing on the details and the difficulties of leadership, you know, there's, there's only, there's only so, so far that argument goes before ultimately it is, it is kind of dull. So I agree. He could have tightened that up. Yeah. But he also, I mean, the th- same thing goes for Danny's chapters too. Like Danny five, six, five and six. <laughs> I'm also kind of hazy what happens. I know that now that Michael's reminded me, I know that Danny goes out and uh, hangs out with the, uh, the people who are suffering from the bloody flux outside of the gates of Marine. I believe that's Danny six. I don't know. Five or six. <laughs> I think that's Danny six. Yeah. But mm, the, I, and the fact that we can't remember, I is think a that was Danny Five because so I see <laughs> back when Tower of the Hand did their um, chapter rankings, they had people vote on them, and the worst chapters in the series um, 
I well, one of them was Brienne one, which is just flat out wrong. So we're gonna ignore that. So but, bad, uh, so wrong. That's just that's just numbers incorrect. Eight and ten yeah. were Danny seven and Danny five from, uh, um, uh, a Dance with Dragons, and number two, the second worst chapter in the series was Danny six from A Dance with Dragons. So that whole middle sequence, Danny five, six, and seven, I, people don't like it. People find that boring. It drags, and I, I get that. Yeah. I see that. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, they're not bad chapters. Again, it, when you go back and reread them, I, I, I find definitely uh-huh. find things to glean from, from the chapters. Um, uh, now that I'm, now you're kind of remembering it. Uh, was Danny five? Is that the one where Brown Ben says, take your dragons out? And Danny says, no, I can't do that. I have to keep my dragons in there and chain my dragons. And the, 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 that's terrific thematic stuff that Martin is doing there where, where Martin is, Focusing in on Daenerys chaining her dragons, and that also means that she's also train, chaining her own draconic personality and 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 things like that. Those are those are, those are good things, but they are. Mm-hmm. I have to kind of be reminded of some of these things by like what Michael's saying to <laughs> kind of get back into that again. It's, for me, it's been about a year and a half since I've read uh, A Dance with Dragons in 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 totality, so there, that does have a have an impact. Um, we talked about this kind of a little bit before. Previously, but just to reemphasize, uh, I think the one of the the things that kind of gets some criticism and I guess sort of okay criticism is that the ending is uh, choppy. And the major reason is that the uh, the two battles that are supposed to close out the books don't occur, uh, and then then Tyrion Lannister's final chapter is just kind of just ends. Like Tyrion's that that's it. He he joins this the second sons and. That's kind of it. There's not really a necessarily a thematic narrative conclusion that you get from John and Danny in in, in, in his chapter, final chapter. Agreed. Yeah. It, it, yeah. John, like the I'd say the five major characters of dance are John, Danny, Tyrion, Theon, and Quentin. Those are the ones that get the most chapters and kind of the most attention put on them. And the other four, I think, all get a great ending. Tyrion's just kind of he's just kind of still there. Uh, and I agree about the Danny middle chapters. As if, I was thinking when you talked about that, it's like, wow, like, wow, there she's coming under siege, and there's a plague going on. That should be a lot more exciting than it is. <laughs> why, why is that not exciting? Objectively exciting things are happening, and that might be as much as I praise the prose overall. I think that might just be a fault of the writing. Like he just did not convey excitement. He did not convey urgency. There's no momentum in those chapters. It's like, I mean, there is early on with Danny when like people are getting killed in the alleyways. And you don't know, you know, it's yeah. it's like she's trying to deal with that. Like I wish that had been the focus yeah. of Danny's overall arc was the the tension within the walls with the Sons of the Harpy, because there's like the there's nothing really interesting with her being under siege or the Pale Mare. That stuff is just kind of talked about in passing, but you don't you don't feel it ever really. Right? Yeah. No, I I would agree with that. I mean, um, the the thing about Danny's uh, sort of middle chapters being more boring i wonder how much of it is is uh method acting uh, danny is bored danny's super bored and george has said in the past that he wants the readers to feel what his characters are feeling um it's just hard to write a good story when your characters are bored um well, was martin readers bored, are gonna be bored and that's just not fun like no one's interested in that um well the question I have is, is, was Martin bored when he's writing this? Is, was, is this like oh. the point in the time when he's writing A Dance of Dragons where he's like, this sucks. This is awful. <laughs> like, I, I agree. And the thing, too, is like we, we talked about John and Danny, but also those middle Tyrion chapters. 
I I love uh-huh. like Tyrion six, Tyrion seven are great. Tyrion eight and Tyrion nine. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. Emmett, you had talked about this. They're they were they're, they're on the ship. They get taken as as slaves by by the slavers. Uh, there's lots of great stuff with Penny, but they're not necessarily interesting chapters as well. You kind of get the you kind of feel the I feel frustrate frustrated when I read these chapters. I think our our friend um, Mighty Isabel has talked about um, when she's reading that she's seeing a lot of Martin's own frustration in in writing. Uh, in, in those middle Tyrion chapters. He knows where he wants to end up, I think. But yeah, I think you can see him having difficulty making it compelling in the meantime. And um, yeah, I think those those are definitely some areas where he could have used some editing. Well, like I compare it to like Sansa's chapters in King's Landing, where she too is frustrated mm-hmm. and is, is being denied what she wants. But she's under threat. There's a constant urgency because Joffrey can have her beaten at any moment. And because there, people are fighting over her claim... So there is an urgency to yeah. it, and there is a there is an overall through line. Whereas, yeah, the middle chapters with Tyrion and Danny and John, it's the the sense of urgency falls away. That's I think it's there there at the beginning for all of them, and I think it's there at the end for Danny and John. But yeah, you start you start to lose the momentum a little bit there, and you yeah you, you absolutely need to keep that going, given that the overall plot is not as big as it was in Storm of Swords. Yeah. You need to have a sense of character momentum yeah. going through. Mm-hmm. And I think he does he does he definitely does start to lose that in the middle. So I totally, you know, I know people who stopped reading a dance with dragons like halfway through and while well, that hurts my heart, <laughs> uh, I, I I do understand. Because yeah, by the time you get to like yeah, I was looking at the list of chapters, just the order of them before uh, we started recording and it's like yeah, John seven and Danny six come right in a row. And then a little bit after that is John eight and Tyrion nine, and I was like, "Yeah, I get that. <laughs> yeah, I get at that point just right. being like, hmm, this is he's lost the thread." I think if you look at where the book ends up, the thread is still there. Again, like I said, one of the things I love most about dance is how it builds on what it's come before and how much of it is enhancing your experience of things that went on in Storm. But yeah, there are moments where it is is just tedious. Well, that's a, it's also kind of funny too. Like uh, I feel like a Martin kind of does this this wink at himself or he's expressing his own frustration either or uh in the um the king's prize chapter from ash's point of view Mm. where he starts Mm. where she starts sarcastically recounting the number of days that they were supposed to be in winterfell they were 15 days on their five-day march or they were on their 30th day on their 15th day march to to winterfell and i kind of get the impression that george is kind of maybe not happily laughing at himself but bitterly laughing at his own (laughs) progress in, in writing writing a dance of dragons because you know it's was delayed it was supposed to come out a year after a feast for crows then the year after that then the year after that then the year after that and then you know it gets released six years after after the five years after he was originally supposed to release uh, the, the follow-up book to to a feast for crows so i i definitely see where, where where that happens and those middle chapters do kind of feel like the place where martin kind of was kind of grinding his gears a little bit and kind of slowing his progress because they're not exciting chapters. And I think Martin likes writing exciting chapters. I think we talked about before how A Storm of Swords was written in 18 months, like the largest book in the entire <laughs> series, because so many exciting things happen in the book. But in A Dance with Dragons, there's that middle section does does drag a bit. One of the weak points for me, and I know this is one that other people in the fandom have, have brought up as well, um, some people disagree. Is Tyrion's fake-out death uh, when they fight the stone men in the Sorrows? 
Um, it's not the first fake-out death in Aswath, <laughs> not by a long shot. And I, I have talked to some people who genuinely believed that this was it for Tyrion. Um, who were like, wow, yeah, that, that was, that's crazy. What a twist that, you know, <laughs> this is how it ends for him. Um, but I, for me, I, you know, I never really believed he was dead and it didn't do much. Um, John Connington gets grayscale from it, I, I guess is what happens. There was, of course, the chapter that George R. R. Martin cut in which, Tyrion encounters the Shrouded Lord in the Sorrows, and it was this very spooky chapter he's talked about, um, and that it got cut for various reasons. I would have gone farther with that cut, maybe. Uh, I would have been more, a little more brutal with that, and just changed the whole sequence of things a little bit. Because the cha- the chapter after Tyrion almost drowns, he wakes up dreaming about the Shrouded Lord and his father, and it kind of makes sense, but it doesn't really make sense because the Shrouded Lord isn't as much of a thing as he would have been if if we had this whole spooky chapter. Um, I don't know. It, it, it was just one of those things where maybe it was that first time reading it, sort of initial slog, and I was like, okay, all right, all right, I get it. You're trying to fake me out again. I'm not going to fall well, for it this time. I think the great uh, analog to that is the Arya fake-out death from A Storm of Swords, which did yeah. feel like... Arya had actually just died there. Like when the axe took her in the back of the head, you're like, you had just experienced the red wedding as, as a reader. And you're like, gosh, like she's now dead too. So I've lost Rob and Catelyn, the entirety of the Northern nobility that we had known at the time, really. And now Arya Stark is now dead too. And, and, and I know I've talked with a number of people that read ahead to find the next Arya chapter, which apparently in, in, in the published version is like two or 300 pages after (laughs) <laughs> she's she's taken in the head so Martin draws out uh, her death yeah. for a while whereas Tyrion kind of I think it's like six or seven chapters later that he comes back into dreaming about the Shrouded Lord I mean there, there's stuff I love about that the, the fake out death I love that line where Tyrion thinks to himself they would not love me living let me let them dread me what's he say they would not love me living let them dread me dead or something like that I'll come back and uh-huh. haunt the world type of stuff which is really good uh, Tyrion character stuff, but it, it also does not feel, it didn't feel real to me either. I, I just, I was expecting essentially for, for, uh, for Tyrion to have another chapter and to keep on living. Cause it didn't feel like a, a narrative conclusion to his arc. The same way that Arya dying at the red wedding would have felt like that was a, you know, a legitimate place where, where her arc could have ended. Cause she's trying to seek for Winterfell throughout a storm of swords. She gets there and she meets her death. I mean, that would, that would make sense. I mean, I'm glad that Martin didn't kill her there, but same time it was yeah i don't know what do you think of it yeah there's there's a plausibility with the Arya fake out death or um theon at the end of clash mm. uh, when winterfell is burning around him it says the last thing he saw was smiler yeah. so i believed it until i read storm that he was dead and that felt perfectly appropriate he, he got one arc he failed miserably uh, it's over um but yeah, there's, there's. I never believed Tyrion was dead for a second. I do, I, I do like the reversal where it's like, oh no, does Tyrion have grayscale? But then it turns out to be Jon Con. Yep. I do think that's kind of clever. That kind of upends your expectations of, of what's of what's really going on. But yeah, the the death sequence itself uh, is not compelling, and it didn't really. You don't really need to end like the, the chapter that way. The, the battle in the sorrows is creepy and spooky enough. You can just you could just end with them barely getting away. Hey. 
uh, and it would have the same. And impact. you could have the same thing too with John Con- John Connington getting grayscale by having one of the stone men like grab his arm or something like that. Like an, he loses his glove. I mean, I'm I'm not obviously I'm kind of speaking extemporaneously. I'm not. Um, sure. But sure. I mean, there's yeah. there's other ways that John Con could get his get the grayscale that he was always supposed to get from the the outset of his arc. Yeah, that's true. I do love that punch at the end of the Lost Lore when he pulls off the glove yeah. and reveals it. That is that is an amazing moment. And yep. um, I get why Egan and John Con weren't on the show. They wouldn't have fit. It would have been bloated. But that is a moment I would love to see uh, dramatized on screen is him slowly pulling off the glove. You can imagine like the music cue. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that is a really powerful moment. But yeah, ag- agreed on Tyrion. That is, that is definitely a... That seems like a, a him doing a fake out death because it's that it's a thing he does, right? Which right. is which is a bad reason to do something as an author if just because you think it's your brand. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and that, that does kind of come through there. Yeah. So that's like, I, I <laughs> after you guys are probably listening to this, you're probably like, oh, you probably have already forgotten all the the weaknesses we mentioned about a storm of swords. We mentioned we talked a lot about the weaknesses of a dance of dragons, uh, but at the end of the day, all three of us think. That on the whole, A Dance with Dragons is the better book than A Storm of Swords, and and I guess for I, so to kind of transition into the more of the uh, um, the more detailed conversation piece, the more discussion side of things, as if the last you know two hours were not uh, detailed <laughs> and dense enough for you already. Uh, I, I figured I had a couple of discussion questions I wanted to to throw out to you guys. Uh, and, and in the kind of the vein that I started this this um, section off with, I wanted to ask for you all, what is the one defining thing that makes A Dance with Dragons the better book than A Storm of Swords? And if it's Quentin, that's fine. You know, just just be honest with me. I, I know that both of you two <laughs> will will probably say Quentin and I totally understand it and get it. But, you know, just what is the, what is that thing that that distinguishes it from A Storm of Swords and makes it? a better book even if only by a little bit I am tempted to say Quentin um, <laughs> just because I, the, the the gut punch of his chapters is, is, is perfect and I love the way he interrogates the genre um, but you know I think the reason dance I prefer dance to storm is because dance stands on storm's shoulders and it, mm-hmm. I think dance is the perfect follow up to a lot of POVs in storm in a lot of in a lot of ways I love that it puts John and Danny through the ringer after how quickly their storm plots moved and how much happened that it takes the time to really investigate the fallout from that. I love, like I said, that it deals with Tyrion's pain with, I think, a lot of integrity in terms of taking it seriously, the psychological impact of what happened in Storm on him. Uh, I love, I mean, Theon was a long con. It was, <laughs> it's been 13 years and three books since we'd seen his POV, and yet everyone loves Theon's dance chapters yes. because of how powerfully written they are and how they change our perspective on him. Yeah. Uh, uh, Davos, um, you know, we hadn't seen him since he made his big decision at the end of Storm to save the day, and, and then dance kind of complicates things again by forcing him to, to put his loyalty to the Stannis to the test. I, I, I So... It's almost a backwards compliment to Storm, but like, you know, I think, like I said, dance only works as well as it does because it, it, it puts layers on top of what happened in Storm. And I think, I think much as people might think it meanders too much or that the five-year gap would have been better, I, I think dance is, is a logical next step after what happens in Storm of Swords. And for me, it's almost, it's almost better by default because of that. Storm enriches dance because everything that happened in Storm is kind of built into dance and this is this is the next the next emotional leap forward. Um, I think it's 
you know, obviously there were two books before Storm, but I almost think about, yeah, Feast and Dance as specifically sequels to A Storm of Swords specifically, mm -hmm. and I think they work brilliantly well in that regard. And I think they they do what great sequels do. They they, they deepen the conflict and they deepen the characters. Uh, you know, I mentioned Empire Strikes Back, or I think about, like, Godfather Part Two, which is not as... It doesn't have all all the iconic moments of Godfather One. It doesn't have the the ending with the cross cutting between the church and the assassination. It doesn't have, you know, make you an offer you can't refuse. Hmm. It doesn't have the big pop culture moments. But I would say it's overall a more a richer and more complex experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the second Sam Raimi Spider Man movie also also comes to mind. I just I think it dance works really 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 well as a deepening of the conflicts introduced in storm storm blows everything up and feast and dance kind of sift through the ashes and i think that's just a lot more interesting than blowing everything up again yeah that's that's not a slight storm uh, this is not that's not a critique of storm saying it's worse than dance because of that but i think i think both of these books make each other better i guess i would say mm, but for me yeah. dance wins out at the end of the day because it's taking the next step yeah i i guess yeah i mean it's quentin um <laughs> no, <laughs> good. I mean, good, good. I, I, I will say, Quentin, I think he plays kind of a similar role in dance to Davos and Stannis in A Storm of Swords, in the sense that there's a there's sort of a thematic heart of the story, and maybe it's not as intricately tied to the plot as everything else. Davos and Stannis, their drama happens really between them on Dragonstone, and I mean, and Melisandre as well. Um, and Quentin, too, his story is very isolated, but that's the heart of the book, um, is this this narrative about what it's like to be a fantasy hero, like we were talking about. Um, but I, I guess if I were to pick, aside from Quentin, um, something that... <laughs> you could say Quentin if you, if you want to. Makes me love... No, 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 I, I, have, a, I have an answer that's going to make me sound even smarter, so that's... Nice. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I, I think it's just that when I compare them, I would rather read the worst Danny chapter in Dance than the worst Arya chapter in Storm. Interesting. If that makes sense. I, yes. I think that even the bloat in Dance is richer than the bloat in Storm. Um, I, I guess that, that that's sort of a hard thing to, to concretify um, in words. But with Storm, you get the feeling like we were talking about earlier, um, that some of the chapters and some of the things that happen in it are, um, we're blowing through them. You know, we're, we're, we're just sort of, this stuff is happening, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Here's the cool stuff. Um, right. Whereas with dance, you feel like every chapter was ripped out of George R. R. Martin with extreme effort and just took a lot of thought and, even the, the chapters where he was frustrated, you know, put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into it. And I think that comes out more than yeah. Arya's first chapter where she and Hot Pie and Lamy are just sort of, or, or whoever it is, um, are, <laughs> are, you know, literally just wandering around the same circle of trees for a while. Um, Danny's uh, statistically worst chapter, according to the Tower of the Hand rankings, which is where she goes out and visits the, the plague victims out in front of the city. There's a lot of great stuff in that chapter, and there's a lot of really interesting things happening. Um it's a little slow, it's a little bloaty, but I still find more to connect to and more to draw me in than I do in the slow, bloaty parts of Storm. So that's my that's my key difference, I guess, is that 
the bloat, the the fat is better in it, 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 a storm of swords is Illyrio Mopatis and uh, Dance with Dragons is Wyman Manderley. We're talking about fat. Uh, <laughs> That's great. There yeah. you go. I agree. Dance has a higher has a higher floor, so to speak. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But I, that's the best way to put it. The thing you're driving at though is like even like that worst Danny chapter is crafting something in Danny thematically of of her because you know she makes the decision that she's not going to allow the people into Marine the plague victims into Marine mm-hmm. that she's going to allow them to die outside of her walls and that does something for her as a character. Arya wandering around the Riverlands and circling the same group of trees and crossing one river and not being sure what river it is only really kind of what it does for Arya is it makes her confused that it shows that she doesn't really know what she's doing, which I guess is, it's, it's fine for what it is. But I do think that there's a greater thematic impulse behind even the most boring, bloated Tyrion, Danny, and John <laughs> chapters in, in A Dance with Dragons. Um I think for me, I, I I remember this really um, strongly in when I was doing the um, the not a blog uh, re- resource thing, where I was I was going through each of, of George R. R. Martin's not a blog entries and, and seeing what he was he was writing about when right around the time when A Feast for Crows was released, he talked about in two thousand eight, he talked about a brand chapter that he had spent six years writing. And Mm -hmm. that chapter almost certainly is Bran's third chapter, uh, which is just a phenomenal spellbinding chapter where Bran is training with Bloodraven and that last set of visions that just kind of blows your mind about how well it's written. And then he it ends with him tasting blood. Uh, That's to me shows a writer who is not just concerned about writing well, but writing uh, above and beyond like the genre. Right. I, I, and, and I know, and I don't mm-hmm. want to say that people who spend a long amount of time writing something by necessity, make a better product. But I think it's <laughs> very true in the case of George R. R. Martin, that the amount of time that he spent writing this book about thinking through what Danny chaining her dragons actually means thinking through things like Bran's visions and what that does to his morality that he's inhabiting Hodor now. And he's, he'll give him back, you know, when he's, when he doesn't need him anymore. And, and that kind of weird and disturbing way that, that, that George does in, in writing Bran and thinking things through like John's temptations of his vows as the Lord commander of the night's watch, whether it's Mance Raider and saving Arya and helping Stannis and marrying Alice Karstark and letting the wildlings through that these things are really well thought out. And then when you go back and reread them, you think to yourself like, yeah, this is, this was worth the amount of time that George put into it. And I think it, it ends up making something that makes, that makes me think. And I, and I'm, I, I can't, really say it much better than that, that when I read A Dance with Dragons, it challenges me as a reader. It makes me think. The complexity drives me to kind of think through what Martin is trying to communicate at a meta level, at a narrative level. And I think those are the main reasons why I think Dance with Dragons is a better book than A Storm of Swords. I love A Storm of Swords. I love all the iconic moments in the book, but I don't sit around in my office or at my home 
thinking about some of the greater implications of a Storm of Swords as much as I am doing that with A Dance with Dragons. And I think that's probably mm-hmm. the main reason why I find A Dance with Dragons the more compelling book than A Storm of Swords. And also Quentin. <laughs> and also Quentin. Quentin. Agreed, man. Well said. Well said. So... One of the common criticisms of A Dance of Dragons, and you kind of see that in the Amazon reviews, the early Amazon reviews, and even some of the more modern ones too, is that, quote unquote, nothing happens in A Dance of Dragons. I, Okay, I don't think it's a fair criticism. I can't imagine you guys think it's a fair criticism either, but I'll pose the question anyways. Is that a fair criticism? No. Okay, That's next it. question. Okay. That was uh, <laughs> <Just> <laughs> <kidding>. <laughs> no, All right, I mean, guys. I, I, Good job, everybody. I mean, I, I get what they mean by nothing happens because I've felt that way a little bit too when I was first reading it. You know, Danny's not going to Westeros. John is is just sort of hanging around the wall. You know, that kind of thing. But, um, gosh, that misses so much. You know, just to to say nothing happens. Um, there's so much interest. It's, people change throughout the course of the book. The, yeah. the main characters change, and and. I don't think you can read a book in which characters change and say that nothing happened. <laughs> right. Um, I agree. It's if you're comparing the beginning of the book to the end of the book, John and Danny are in very different positions. Theon is in a very different position. Yeah. Quentin is dead. Bran has developed more of his superpowers. You know, Barristan has kind of not redeemed himself, but is, is, is thinking about, you know, there's, there's a, there's a catharsis in Barristan who stood by and did nothing while the Mad King burned people. Uh, becoming the kingbreaker, yeah. you know, there's there's a, there's a there's a power to that. Uh, it's more character driven than plot driven, certainly. Mm-hmm. And I like like we said, I get the frustration about the lack of battles at the end. But like, look at like look at the North remembers stuff. Or, yeah. You know, look at uh, look at all the stuff we that's going under the surface in Volantis or. Look at the walk. I mean, that's a that's a look at the walk and the introduction of Robert Strong at the end. That's a big deal. Yeah. You know, look at yeah. Egan's invasion of Westeros begins. That's a big deal. I would say that uh, stuff not being paid off is a more accurate criticism than nothing happens. I think mm-hmm. I think it's a fair criticism that what happens at the end isn't what we wanted it to be. But to say that nothing happens in the book, I think that's I think that's honestly a, a more accurate description of a feast for crows. And I think in a feast for crows, it's kind of deliberately supposed to be not much is happening because it's a book about the direct aftermath and about you know people wrestling with the loss of important huge people so i think it's appropriate that you know i mean in feast literally the beginning and end of the book are in the same place so i think it's, it's supposed to be a kind of a gigantic circle in a lot of respects but yeah dance i mean it's it only it only feels, I think, uneventful compared to Storm because Storm is just a fireworks show, for better or for worse. Yeah, no, and and, and I, I I get that, and I I totally agree. I feel like the nothing happens criticism is is way overstated um, because a bunch of stuff does happen in the books. Uh, Theon jumps. John is assassinated. Yeah. Daenerys flies away from Daznak's pit. You know, you have these major seismic changes in the story and plot events that are happening. And I do agree that it is more story-driven than plot-driven as a book. And I think by necessity of it being one of those midpoint books, it has to be more story-driven and more character-driven and determining who the characters are as they progress towards the end game, which we will see in the Winds of Winter and the Dream of Spring, uh, I, I, I have a very strong feeling that 
The Winds of Winter is going to be a very plot-heavy book. I do hope that there are story elements. Um, I, I think we get a fair amount of story elements in some of the sample chapters. Ariane's chapters yeah. are extremely story-driven and delving down into who she is after Doran Martell has realized, or rather that after Doran Martell has revealed uh, her his his master plan, quote unquote, the Dornish ma- no not that. Um, <laughs> to, to reveal his his plan his plan to bring the Targaryens to Westeros. Uh, Aaron Greyjoy's chapter his is the Forsaken chapter is both masterfully plot driven. Mm. I, I I might as well just put throw in a, a, a Forsaken chapter here. The question for 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 Emmett uh, to, to kind of as we get get towards the closing parts of it, but I, I'll, I'll refrain for the moment. Um, but I I do think that. The Winds of Winter is, Martin has said, is going to open the book with the two battles that were supposed to be at the end of A Dance of Dragons. That is the Battle of Ice and the Battle of Fire. Uh, I think it's, they're going to be very... I don't want to say they're going to be like a Storm of Swords in, in so much as that I don't think that they're necessarily the Battles of Ice and Fire are going to have the same gut punches that the Red Wedding has and things like that. But I do think that they're going to be very action oriented. And, you know, you have the Barristan's chapters, which we've already read or have had uh, people read to us or recount rather to us on uh, different forums um, that are very action oriented or very exciting. You have Tyrion's chapters where the, the Second Sons defect again uh, to uh, Daenerys' side. That's a very interesting and exciting chapter. But Martin is still doing story stuff and character stuff in those chapters. Uh, I, I love in the Barrison chapters how he's remembering um, Gerald Hightower and and different things in history. Uh, I love also, too, that Barrison, when he sees the Ironborn approaching, uh, he thinks that it's like... Uh, uh, Emmett, you know this better than I do at this point. It's like Baylor Breakspear, Baylor Breakspear, and Makar Targaryen, the Hammer and the Anvil. We have them. We have them, which is just yeah, exciting. That's the stuff. We have them. Is such a great. That's a great closing end of the chapter. Yeah. But yeah, I agree. Winds is is probably going to ramp up a lot of that stuff um, and and pay off a lot of things that was that were happening in Dance. But I mean, that's also true of Clash versus Storm. Yes. Like Clash was setting up a lot of interesting character dynamics that like with Stannis. Uh, or uh, with Bran that really only start to pay off later. And Dance is like, you know, we meet the children of the forest in Dance for the first right. time. That's amazing. Yeah. We get to meet the Three-Eyed Crow and find out it's a person we already knew about. That was a, that was mind-blowing for me the first time I ever danced, and it turns out to be Blood Raven. That was incredible. I mean, Wyman Manderley serves people. <laughs> yeah. That's a thing that happens. Like, That's right. Yeah. John gets stabbed. Like, I mean, there's, 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 there's plenty of stuff. Plenty of stuff going on. I think I think what might have happened is yeah, people took their disappointment with the end and kind of uh, rippled that across the whole of the book and their memory of it, uh, and, and to determine that everything in the book was that kind of uh, cliffhanger. But I don't think that's a. Arya gets her sight back. I don't think that's an accurate take on the book as a whole. I I do wonder sometimes if we if we had six years, seven years, whatever it is to think about a Game of Thrones and then Clash comes out, if we would all be really peeved that Stannis and Renly aren't working together, like why is he wasting right. so much time with this Baratheon brother conflict when, you know, it, it makes so much more <laughs> sense for them to f- work together uh, this right. ta- taking well, all this time to see you know, 
to wait and predict and guess and all that means that when you get it, if it's not what you expect, you go, ah, what? Come on. Danny's not going to Westeros. <laughs> so I, I, I wonder I, how much I that I think you're exactly right. To. Like, imagine, people generally don't like Karth as it is. Imagine if we waited years for Karth. <laughs> oh, like, Danny's birth, I think it's the dragons at the end of Game of Thrones. We wait six years for her to go to, a, like, a lame city and not do much and then enjoy a trip and that's it. Like, that, like imagine, or, like, John just wanders beyond the wall for a while. You know, like, yeah, yeah I think yeah. a lot of the same arguments would be made. Not all of them. You still got the Blackwater, of course. But, yeah, like we've been saying, I think a lot of that colored the reaction to dance. I think if, and I wonder maybe... After Winds comes out, I wonder if the reputation of Feast and Dance will be in any way rehabilitated, or maybe the opposite. Maybe Winds will be awesome enough that people will think, oh, he's back on track, and screw those two books. But I will be curious to see how the interpretations of Feast and Dance change, if they do, when and if we get too well. Yeah, I I feel like that, if I can just take my own view, and I'm I'm not saying this is objectively true, um, but I, I think that... I see some of the same criticisms of Feast and Dance come up around like the Ariane chapters. Um, I, I do see some folks yes. who criticize it as nothing happens. Again, I've seen that that critis- the same criticism of Feast and Dance used there. Uh, I have, like the Forsaken. I've I've not really. I mean, I read one criticism by our friend Gildy, who's one of our fellow moderators on um, on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. Uh, I, I didn't agree with the criticism, but it's it's there and it's an interesting read if you want to take a look at it. Um, but we'll have to see. So I guess, you know, I, I just have one more discussion question uh, here. And that's um, to kind of close this out. Do you think that the Song of Ice and Fire fandom has been stronger? I don't know how my phrase is. Has been stronger because of A Dance with Dragons and some of the analytical and theoretical thought that have been put into that book? And, and I'll include Feast in this, this uh, question too. Stronger both with Feast and Dance now and in the wait for the Winds of Winter. Has it been good for the fandom or has it been kind of a mixed bag? That's an interesting question. I mean, with Dance, it's difficult because the show started around the same time. And that obviously led to such a huge explosion and more attention being paid to the story, which was already best-selling, but the show just didn't, you know, grew the audience so much. So I think those both went hand in hand. Overall, I, I think it's 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 good because you have stuff like the Miranese block really drawing people's attention to the books. And, you know, I think having people argue about it and have huge disagreements on the whole is, 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 is good for the fandom. You get a lot of different perspectives and people are trying them out in each other and you get a lot of different theories. So yeah, overall, overall, I would say it's stronger. I think if the wait goes on for much longer though, that's going to, the, the balance is going to start to tip where it's, and you can start, it's, it's, there are already moments where it's becoming something like an echo chamber. And I know uh, several people who have kind of tapped out of the fandom uh, entirely until the next book shows up, which I completely understand. So overall, I would say stronger, but like I said, you know, I I get people for whom the weight is frustrating and the final products of Feast and Dance are frustrating because of the weight. So yeah, that, I think that, that has, that has hurt the fandom somewhat. Yeah. What about you, Michael? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I, I read a lot of fantasy series, both contemporary and sort of, you know, more more classic. And uh, 
Aswaf is still the only one where I can get this level of discourse on, you know, some minor D-list character who's mentioned <laughs> once. Like, you know, the, the equivalent of Kyle Condon in another series isn't even a meme. I mean, you know, he's not even a joke. He's just nothing. Yeah. Um, so that's that's, that's something I really like about it because there are, there are series I think that deserve this kind of attention. Um, I George R. R. Martin has cited Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn, and I try to mention it in every podcast I'm in, but um, <laughs> it's it absolutely has the same level of depth as as Aswaf. Um, but because it was published within four or five years of each other in the early '90s, there wasn't like a large online community breaking every chapter down. Um, so I appreciate the fact that we have this time to create all this text and discussion that we can take three hours on a Monday night and, and right. talk about the book and that people listen to it. You know, people are out there interested in it. Uh, I also agree with you though, Emmett. Um, we're sort of running out of that grace period where it's cool and fun. Um, uh, pe- people are kind of drifting away, I think. And certainly when the show ends, if TUI isn't out, then I think it's going to be a much different space. It's going to be a lot more bitter, a lot less fun. Um, part of the fun for me in the early days, like, uh, well, yeah, after dance through like maybe 2014 was the wait, was the, the wait for the winds of winter because we all kind of thought like, okay, it's fun to discuss dance, but any day now we're going to get that announcement. Um, <laughs> and as that seemed less and less realistic, um, there's always that that sort of uh, is sort of Damocles mixing metaphors here, hanging over our heads. Um, like <laughs> it, it's a reverse sort of Damocles. It, it's the absence of of the winds of winter that's hanging over our heads. <laughs> sure. Um, so I yeah I I find it a positive thing because obviously I you know I've made lots of good friends and and you know get to hang out and talk to cool people. But uh, yeah, it's it's starting it's starting to wear. Yeah, I mean, no, I'm, I met my girlfriend because of these books. I certainly can't complain about the, the community that's sprung that's up around right. it and how great it is. And I'm really looking forward to watching, you know, this kind of analytical hive mind we've developed. I'm really looking forward to seeing it unleashed on T-World. Yeah. That, that w- that's going to be a hell of an experience to, to, to watch canon and theories ripple and change overnight. We got a taste of that with yes. The Forsaken. I mean, yeah. this is something we've, we've been, uh, we're just talking about on Twitter yeah. about how that, that brought up some theories and brought low ones and introduced new ones. And it just, it completely scrambled everyone's brains. And I remember how exciting those couple of days were Oh yeah. when everyone was like, okay, can- canon has just altered. We have all these new things to think about. We have all these things to analyze and you have all these people like that was, I had a lot of fun during those oh, couple I, of days. Yeah. And T- the release of T.O.W. Is, is just going to be that, you know times however many chapters oh i'm gonna so, take, i'm gonna take a week off of work yeah that is uh, <laughs> oh yeah and we all are and like like that's it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a significant economic problem for the united states <laughs> our gdp um, is going down the world as, as a whole we're gonna it's gonna be it's gonna be another recession tyl is gonna be a serious serious problem but yeah that's and uh, so I'm, I'm i'm extremely i feel extremely lucky and happy to be part of that uh but i i think michael you're absolutely right that if the show ends and we don't have an, we don't have another book or we don't have an announcement or we don't have anything firm, uh, people are going to be pissed and people are going to start falling away. I mean, the money's going to start going away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the, the national attention is going to start go away. The non, the non nerd press is going to stop paying much attention yep. to it. Yeah. 
And, you know, I mean, there will, be a, there will be an intimacy to that, I suppose, but I really want to see another book come out in the current context, in the current yeah. wave of public attention and awareness being put on this story. I want a new book in that world. Because mm-hmm. even when Dance came out, the show hadn't started yet, so it was as big as the online fandom was. It's just nothing compared to what it is now. Uh, yeah. So and and, and I'm, I I I want T Wow not just because I've been waiting for it for so long but because I want to read it with you all you know and yeah, I want you all yeah. I want everyone to still be there when the book lands so we can do it together exactly and I I also I don't want the legacy of Aswaf to be oh remember that series that took forever to come out um, which I mean it, that's inescapable at this point but you just don't want that to be to be what's remembered about the books because they are they're quite good books they they really are. Um, and it, it would be really sad if that was the thing that gave them notoriety, um, as opposed to their quality. So. Yeah, true. Yeah, true. and I, and I and I I think we all hope that that Martin will uh, will close close the loop, so to speak, and and the Winds of Winter <laughs> will be out in soon, at some point. <laughs> Please, I'm I'm crossing my fingers for end by the end of 2019. That's my hope at this point. Because we know Fire and Blood's coming first. Yeah. So my my hope is we get an announcement by the time season eight is done. I'll that's take that. Hope. I mean, I'll take anything God. at this point. That's I'll take that's anything. Pathetic. But that's, that can you imagine like telling twenty eleven a, a realistic enough hope? <laughs> like, like, can you imagine sitting yourself down and? Oh man, he'd have, he'd have a lot of questions for me. Like, what you cut your hair? But uh, but yeah, that would definitely be up there. That I'd, that I'd that that I'd be praying and hoping for eight years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, yes, a whole nearly a whole decade. I, I you know I I think the community aspect is is fantastic in a song of ice and fire, and I've never found a fandom and like this, and I've never really been even a part of a fandom besides the song of ice and fire fandom. I mean, uh, mm. we had, remember that episode we talked about where our first quote unquote fandoms were. But posting six times on a forum about Knights of the Old Republic back in 2005 is nothing like having, I don't know, 10 trillion essays about, you know, John Connington, Aegon, Stannis, all of these different characters that, that I enjoy and gravitate towards and people reading them and interacting with them. And it's, it's, there's a sense of fulfillment in that that I've never experienced in almost anything else in my life. I mean, besides being married, being married is pretty great. Uh, and then there's, and it's a life affirming and things like that, but there's, there's, and having children, of course, also very great and life affirming. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, it's <laughs> on the same venture though. It is, it is life affirming to be a part of the song of ice and fire community. And I think that it's stronger because of a dance of dragons and it's stronger because of folks like Adam, like, like you, Michael, and like you, Emmett, like you guys, like you make being a part of this fandom uh, as as fun as it is and as thought provoking as it is. And I uh, appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I hope that come the winds of winter, which I had heard is coming out next week, um, that when that comes out, that we'll uh, we'll be able to kind of dedicate some significant amount of time and thought and analysis to. And I'm looking forward to it. Just imagine the victory laps we're going to take about everything we're right about, and imagine the crow we're going to have to eat for everything we're going to be wrong about, and that's that's just going to be so much fun. We're going to have so much to praise and make fun of each other for. That is oh, very, God, very yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. 
I almost feel like uh, we should make like a list of like all of our theories and then just like have like crossed out the ones that we got wrong. Uh, like a kind of circle for like partial credit and like a check mark for those that we. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we rank him up. But yeah, I agree. I've never been in the fandom quite like this. Like I've been a, a Star Trek fan uh, for as long as I can remember. But that's not really about theorizing. That's more just about getting into like the minutiae, like spaceship details, and you know, coming up with fanfic, which is great. But there's not like a there's a kind of there's a momentum I yeah. feel with this fandom is like we build on things and we keep it like and it's it's grown. But yeah, that yeah, that's something I haven't felt uh, in, in any other any other media for sure. Yeah. So I think that about wraps us up uh, now that we've uh, taken about three hours of your time. Uh, we obviously appreciate everyone listening to us and uh, and our bannering. And uh, yeah, just uh, first and foremost, Michael, thank you so much for coming on and being a guest on our episode and sharing a lot of fantastic insights. And that's it was awesome. Thanks for thanks for coming on. Oh, my gosh. No, this was yeah, great. This was you. amazing. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. Um I, I, since I listen to you guys every week, it's nice to uh, nice to actually interrupt when I'm, and, and you can hear me because I interrupt when I listen as well. But um, you guys, you guys can't, you're not responding, so <laughs> this was very nice. That's very rude of us. We'll get right on that. So, uh, so where where can we find you on social media and your website and stuff like that? Totally. So I am on Twitter constantly at bookshelf stud. Um, I'm also on Reddit at that username. Like I said, I'm a moderator on the Song Vice Fire subreddit. Um, my website is offmichaelsbookshelf.wordpress.com, and that's mostly Aswaf stuff with some other things. Um, you can find me on Maester Monthly, which really just check out and be sure to check out the YouTube version because our editor Aaron puts an enormous amount of work into the yes, he does uh, the audio and video editing for it. it it's really looks like a professional production way better than we deserve <laughs> um no but so definitely check out maester monthly especially on youtube um and of course on twitter all other major platforms um i also have a podcast that i've started recently doing sort of 30 minute breakdowns of um science fiction fantasy short stories from the last century or so and that's called fantastic transmissions uh that's on twitter as well at fan transmission because the whole name didn't fit in the handle. Um, so I check that out if you, if you like listening to just my voice um, and not me talking to other people. It's not very funny, so just an advanced warning. Um, gosh, I think that's probably it. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, definitely check out your stuff. And, uh, you know, Return of the White, White Wolf was an essay that I thought was a fantastic and valuable contribution yes. to the fandom and I uh, encourage everyone here to listen to it and we'll link that essay as well as all of the other uh, podcasts that you're a part of and that you host on our uh, our, our, uh, our podcast page when we release this episode so yeah thanks very much for, for coming on sure and actually as as Emmett alluded to a few minutes ago uh, on Twitter we were just talking about an essay that I had written a while ago about Theon which you should also check out because I still stand by some things in it um, but the Forsaken totally broke it um, so if, <laughs> if you want to see sort of a relic from before we had the Forsaken go check that one out it's called King Broken Smile it's two-parter uh, it's very long excellent yeah it's, it's really well-written stuff I definitely recommend that highly oh, thank you uh, so, guys, if you like this episode, like we said, this is going to be a, kind of a, a taste of our special episodes going forward. 
And if you get access to the special episodes, if you go to uh, patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, and sign up to be one of our sponsors, uh, we're going to have a start charging those on April 1st, and you'll get access to our, our special episodes, as well as a couple other goodies that I alluded to before, show notes, early release, and things of that nature. Uh, you can uh, f- find us, uh, the podcast, at Notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, on Twitter. Uh, you can find us on uh, under that name on at Podbean and SoundCloud and iTunes. Uh, you can uh, find me on social media personally at portquentin.tumblr.com and at portquentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire WordPress.com and at Brendan Beefish on Twitter. And the music that you heard is by a band by the name of Intermissions, and the song is called Summer Child. So check them out. We'll link to them in the show notes. And yeah, I think that is about everything. Again, thank you, Michael, for joining us. And we will see you guys next time. So long, everybody.